Airline Pilot Guy, episode 381. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 3F at the Mills House in Charleston, South Carolina. Today's show is recorded on the 28th of June, 2019. Today's episode, 11 people are killed when a skydiving plane crashes in Hawaii. Investigation is underway into why two German Air Force fighters collided. More news, your feedback, and in today's Plane Tales, Jeff Lee, Master Photographer, Part 1. We'll get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 381 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He is a real radio professional in the largest media market in the world, New York City. We do appreciate that, Roger. And this is an aviation podcast where we talk about news and aviation between shows and also answer your great feedback. And here to help me with that, from her lakeside studio in South Carolina, she's a doctor, a skydiver. Marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot. Her name is Dr. Steph. Hey, that is me. I will do my best to help. I can make no promises or guarantees. But looking forward to a great show. Glad to be back here with you guys. Missed out on last week and uh, should be a good one. Let's do it. Looking forward to it. And also joining us from his studio in the English countryside, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, and international airline pilot based in London, Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff. I'm looking forward to another show as well. I don't know whether it'll be a good one. I guess time will tell. Time will tell. Thank you for joining us from across the pond. And finally, last but not least, he is in a studio near the Concord Covered Bridge in Smyrna, Georgia. Barbecue master, motorcycle rider, pontoon boat skipper, underwater photographer, and captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier. Captain Dana. And hair fashion model. Hair fashion model. Yes. Oh. <laughs> and I am back for another show. I'm surprised I'm invited back. No, I'm only, only really kidding. I may contribute this evening, but I may not. But we'll see. Looking forward to another fun and fantastic show. And I'm having a bad hair day today. Exceptionally bad, actually. You'll have to watch the video, folks, to see his uh, lovely hairstyle. <laughs> or either that or something, some like large insect just dropped on top of your head. I'm not sure what. Well, you know, it's just so hot mm-hmm. here. I just had to put on my my really warm hat. That's perfect. Cool. Yeah, don't let so, that heat yeah. escape. Keep all the hot air in. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, I'm full of a lot of hot air, as everybody knows. Yes, well, we all are, actually. And I'm feeling like an av geek this evening because I am wearing a shirt with a beautiful L1011 on the, mm. on the front of it. It's pretty Very nice. So, all right. Well, hello everybody. How's everybody been? Meh. Mm. Meh. Okay. <laughs> Meh. Meh. Okay. Well, 
<laughs> That's the recipe for a great show coming up. <laughs> I'm glad everybody's had a great week. Um, well, let's go into a little bit of detail then to find out how crappy your week has been. And let's start off with uh, Captain Nick. Uh, well, my week hasn't been too bad. I'm just trying to cram a, a quart into a pint pot at the moment to get everything uh, I need to do before I set off in what it probably around two weeks now, isn't yep. it? I set off for uh, Atlanta, looking forward to it. Got my tickets today, all sorted. Um, uh, yeah, I've still got some leftover uh, American dollars to bring with me, so I don't need currency. I've got passport. I've got uh, my... Uh, 25-year pass to the uh, Virgin Atlantic uh, uh, lounge at Heathrow. Yes. 25 years? Yeah. You you guess what you get for your 25 years. You get a free pass that you can use any (laughs) time for the rest of your life into all the Virgin lounges. So that's kind of worth it. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So looking forward to coming out, looking forward to seeing you guys, getting very excited about that. Uh, Sadly, there's an awful lot to do between now and then. And I also spotted a new car. Uh, I thought, ah, damn, there's this, uh, there's this 800, it's only got 800 miles on the clock. It's a new Audi TT. Uh, It's got everything. It's only like six months old. It's got everything you could possibly have on it looks fantastic and i thought oh that would be just the perfect car to replace my old airport tt that i used to drive and leave in the in the airport car park all the time um and that we could cruise around in jilly and i uh and i don't think i've got time to buy it before we come out so it'll probably have been bought by somebody else i forget are they all convertible tops no no you can get coupes and and I'm looking at a nice roadster, but it's just got all the singing and dancing stuff on it. So I thought, well, that would be really nice. I could never afford that in a new one. It's like it costs a bomb. But uh, anyway, if anyone from Audi in Yeovil is listening, yeah, please hang on to that for me because I want that one. All right, well. Cross our fingers and hope that. Uh, so why aren't you making a bid on it? Why, well, I've got time to go down there and take a look at it. It's uh, it's a long drive and it'll take a day. And I, the moment I just aren't don't you, have a yeah, day. Don't, don't, you, don't we have? Aren't you retired? Don't don't we have friends in he is a busy man that have airplanes he, that own airplanes, private airplanes that you can just hop on the airplane and maybe some pick you up and take you down there. Well, that would be nice, but I'm just looking at my diary and going, I probably haven't got time for this, but you never know. I might. It might still be there. It might still be there. And it might be a couple of thousand cheaper by then because mm-hmm. no one's bought it. You never know. That's true. There you go. Anyway, that's Or something that's better me. will show up. You Although know. you are retired, so you're in a fixed income, so you might not be might not be wise to go ahead and spend all that money. Mate, I'm going to die in uh, like five years, so I'm going to spend it before then. There you go. That's my philosophy. Okay. Just spend it while you got it. <laughs> I want the last check that I write to bounce. Oh, very good. I like that. Yeah. I didn't come yeah. up with that, but I like that. I already wrote it. Yeah, you can't Excellent. take it with you. Can't take it with you. Nope. And that's the no. The Brinks truck cannot follow you to the grave because there's nothing you can do with it there. Yeah, and that's the check you write to Dignitas, that bunch in Switzerland that will quietly end your life for you. Is that right? I don't know. Have Perhaps. you been Have depends you been on, researching depends on that? the circumstances? <laughs> Oh, of course, yes. It's, uh, it's very well known that if you want to uh, quietly depart this world, you go off to Switzerland and visit Dignitas. Oh, okay. Well, that's uplifting. Thank you. Yeah. 
It's a great way to start the yeah. show. Um, <laughs> planning, our, planning our own demise. We, we already have the name of the show for the night. For the <laughs> uh, no. So how is the, uh, how's the lawn bowling going? Oh, it's very good. Had a, and I'm actually tonight, I had to drive about two hours to get there. We uh, started early, uh, played uh, well enough to win, which is brilliant because having gone all that way, it would have been a shame to lose. Uh, managed to get back in time, which is a bonus. So, yeah. Um, but at the moment, uh, I've just got to try and squeeze a whole month's uh, worth of games into the next two weeks. Uh, hence, I'm, you know, pushing poop uphill. It's hard. Okay. It's been um, it's been a theme for Nick tonight. I'm not sure why. <laughs> why he's producing poop, so much poop? poops in a pile. Pup. Not even poop. It's pup. I'm not sure why he's producing well, so much yeah. of it, and I'm, I'm why he's moving it around the... so much. He apparently likes playing with it. I see. No, it's, no, it's, it's, not, it's not it at all. It's, it's, I'm trying not to use the I mean, euphorisms. That's what I'm trying to use. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. I guess we should count our blessings. Yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> Family show. Family show. Yes. Um, so the, so the, the bowling is going well? It is. Thank you very much yes. indeed. I'm feeling very healthy and uh, sleeping well and uh, feeling like I've rejoined the human uh, race, which is, uh, for me, just a strange feeling after so many years of being jet-lagged. It's a really, really nice place to be. Excellent. That all blanked out for me, but that's okay. Luckily, we're it all was, doing nice. local recording. It was something nice. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was <laughs> a very nice comment. <laughs> we'll back, but okay, I, I look forward to hearing it. <laughs> I just looked down and was hearing nothing, and everybody was completely frozen. I went, ah. oh, well. Um, so um, that's great. I'm looking forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks, Nick. And uh, let's see. Let's do uh, Dr. Steph. Mm-hmm. So I last saw you all two weeks ago. Yes, I missed you last week. That's right. Yeah, you and did, a, did miss a, you a very quick little. Oh yeah, that's right. Kind of a hello and goodbye. On the show. I was in Chicago. Uh, I was there teaching a spine injection course, or helping to teach it, I should say, because it certainly was not all me. But um, that's kind of a fun thing for me to do. A little different and a nice way to uh, catch up with some other colleagues that I haven't seen in a while. Um, actually, it was actually very nice in Chicago. The weather was beautiful. It was like in the 60s, 70s, uh, rained a little bit, but apparently we had some bad storms here while I was out there. So I missed out on all of that. Fortunately, Aww. I'm not sad about it. It no. looks, looks pretty terrible. So yeah. I don't think it actually affected my house uh, too much, but I know friends of mine were without power for like a day and a half in some places. Oh, it's pretty bad. That's not good. And, um... Gosh, what else since then? I uh, got to catch up with some friends while I was out there in Chicago as well, some family. And um, similar to Nick, just trying to cram a whole bunch into not a lot of time. Um, did get to do some flying this week, a couple days ago. Um, set aside about an hour and a half and um, just did some stuff in the local area and some traffic pattern work. And it was it was fun. Excellent. Kind of nice to get back up again. Yeah. Huh? So. Trying to do more of that. Hopefully it will keep me sane since work just mm -hmm. seems to be insanely busy all the time anymore. Well, we hope we will provide a a, a distraction for you on so. today's show. Big plans for the weekend? Um, no, it's going to be hot and I plan on spending quite a lot of time in the lake. So a little bit of um, uh, this, this weekend's just a break from things because there's a lot of stuff coming up. It's true. Um, 
That's true. Dana. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Dana, did he leave? <laughs> He's still here. I'm oh, right here. So how how have you been? How has your week been going? Well, I actually, you know, like this aviation podcast that mm-hmm. we do, I actually did some aviating. Oh, nice. So we can actually talk a little bit about flying for a change. Uh, other than them, you know, we we're talking. Well, forget about that. Anyways, uh, I got called out this past week on my reserve days, and they used me all but one day this past month uh, of my reserve availability. So I flew um, credited out at 88 hours. I, I worked my butt off this month. And this past week was uh, a bit of a challenge. Um, first uh, day was Atlanta to Jackson, Mississippi. Spent a wonderful 29 and a half hours there. I am not going to talk anything about Jackson other than my FO and I ended up walking to a, um, uh, a museum, which is a, a natural history museum. Had a fantastic display of uh, dinosaurs there and also um, had contacted Captain Jeff about, I had remembered that he mentioned about a, um, about a barbecue restaurant there in the uh, Jackson area. And so I took his advice and I walked on over to, I think it's Pig and Pint. You walked all the way up there? That's a long oh, yeah. walk. Yeah. I did. We did over six miles of walking after I'd worked out for an hour and a half earlier in the day. I actually feel really good this week. I had a lot of energy, even though I was really hurting my right hip, my left knee, my right shin, my back. I uh, still did it all. So why not? Only live life once. So it was actually a pretty nice day for uh, walking. It wasn't overly, it was very, excuse me, it was very humid, but uh, the sun wasn't out, so the temperature wasn't very hot. So we, we did it with pleasant, did it pleasantly. Um, then uh, left Jackson, flew from Jackson back through Atlanta up to Albany, New York. Another one of my least favorite overnights, but that's okay. No offense to you, Albany. Um, and uh, I'm not going to talk about that overnight either, beyond the fact that went to the Hollow, which has excellent food there, and um, among one of the best French onion soups, I think, probably, that I've tasted in a very long time. I've been there once before. Uh, and then left Albany in the morning, and that uh, day didn't start off well, and it just got worse from there on the way back into Atlanta. My first officer, nobody's ever heard of a reroute, have you? Uh, we've never talked about that on this show. Uh, first officer and I were getting along great. We actually were very much alike in personality, uh, and he's an excellent pilot, and we uh, both were regional guys, and it just was a great trip together. And, of course, what happens on the last round trip, he gets rerouted, uh, and I lose him, and I end up with another first officer who was uh, uh, nothing bad to say about him. He was a great first officer, um, former military uh, Navy guy, flew the C-40 in the, the Navy, and uh, C-40 is the 737. Oh. So uh, he happened to know a really good buddy of mine that taught at the Higher Power Aviation Academy there in Dallas, and they did a lot of work together. So it was a nice conversation. So that's what's been going on with me. Excellent. I, uh, speaking of reroutes, Dana, well, first of all, before I talk about my current trip, I got a chance to pick up a turnaround uh, to Norfolk, Virginia and back and uh, did that on Tuesday. And on my way back home on Marta, I stopped at the Petrie Center station and I walked over to the Hilton and I uh, met up with uh, Steve Horn of the How I Got Here fame and 
we went and had some uh, lunch and then I uh, got back on the train, headed home and then had a day off and then back out again on this three day trip. We're on day two right now, but the first day, uh, anytime lately, at least on our fleet, uh, Dana and my fleet, if you have more than like an hour uh, break uh, going through Atlanta or any of the big hubs, you are uh, susceptible to being rerouted or rerouted your choice. And we had like a two hour something or other uh, turn in Atlanta after we went to, I'm not even sure I remember where we went. No, we went to Houston, Intercontinental, and then back. And on the way back, uh, I, I even mentioned to uh, Drew, uh, the first officer, that you know there, there's a good chance that we're going to be susceptible to it. And especially since I have made plans in Springfield, Massachusetts, which, which is where we layover when we have a Bradley long layover. And we had planned a meetup there uh, next to the hotel at Uno's Pizzeria and Grill. And sorry if you're listening, guys, uh, for all of those who were planning on meeting up with me on, uh, what was it, yesterday. So that's Thursday, I guess. Uh, I do apologize, but uh, Acme decided that they needed Drew and I to go somewhere else. And that place was Toronto. Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And I thought, well, that's nice. I know somebody up there. And so I quickly texted this young lady named Liz Piper and said, hey, I'm going to uh, be up your in your neck of the woods and would love to uh, meet up for dinner. So that's what we did. Went to the, uh, uh, the hotel in uh, downtown Toronto, uh, Rogers Center or whatever. And she picked us up and we went to a really lovely restaurant and uh, it was a restaurant slash brewery. What was it called? Anderson's, I believe. And uh, great beer and great food and great uh, Anderson's? conversation. Anderson's, what a great name. Oh, wait a minute. No, that can't be right. Um, maybe it was great beer, Am- great food, Am- great company. Sounds Amsterdam. Uh, maybe it was called Amsterdam. <laughs> Amsterdam. Yeah, I think that's actually, maybe I was just thinking of such great things and I thought of, I just, Anderson popped in my head for some reason, some strange reason. Anyway, uh, we had a great time and uh, so here we are. I'm in Charleston, South Carolina right now and recording this week's episode with my good friends and Steph and Nick and Dana. Um, I was wondering who you were referring to. I didn't. I looked around <laughs> and I did not see any of your good friends here. So I'm glad you. I don't have weren't any, having a actually, senile moment there or something. It's, uh, it's really not. Yeah. A, it's really not a secret. A hallucination. I don't have any friends? Sort of I have no friends. Apparitions in your rooms. <laughs> Nobody loves me. <laughs> <laughs> How about that what? big six foot tall white rabbit you keep talking about? Mm-hmm. Harvey, yeah. isn't he oh, your yeah, best Harvey, friend? Yeah. I don't know where um, Nick. Make sure you send me that information about the assisted suicide in Switzerland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I think he already has. Actually. Okay, I know. He sent it to all of us. I think we it was have, a hint. We already. Have sort of. <laughs> I don't know what you're trying to hint, and what kind of hint yeah, you're trying to give just, to all of us. But uh, Andrew, Andrew I've already called him. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, hey, so I have some great news about Oshkosh. Woo-hoo. Been very busy with all kinds of. Stuff regarding T-shirts and hats. The hats. The oh, did I mention I'm, we're we're gonna have some hats? Um, and well, now you know. <laughs> no, yeah, I like a I top hat. Personally. No, it's not that kind of hat. It's a baseball cap. Um, 
What is and, this uh, baseball thing? Well, you yeah, know, baseball is a sport here in the U.S. <laughs> you can't even get away with that one. Yeah. Damn. Sorry. Anyway, uh, it's uh, they're going to look very nice, and uh, we are going to have some some of those available for purchase uh, in uh, while we're in Oshkosh. And uh, let's see what else. It's going to be about twenty bucks. Uh, the way it breaks down with the with the uh, embroidered um, Acme Air logo on the front and airline pilot guy show along the uh, that little like an arch uh, along that opening in the back of the cap and uh, I think everybody will like them I know that I do and uh, so again we'll bring all those up with us to uh, Oshkosh so if you're at Oshkosh and you want to uh, get one of those things just uh, you know let us know. The T-shirts, I believe, uh, if you haven't already put your order in, and you'd have to be watching this show live right now, and if you are watching this live, we do apologize uh, for uh, all the technical glitches today. It's a glitch. Uh, but, uh, yeah, get your order in right now to oshblast2019 at airlinepilotguy.com. That goes to Liz. She'll put you on the spreadsheet or your order on the spreadsheet because I'm trying to get the finalized order in very soon so that we can actually get those things printed before Nick and I hit the road on Monday, the 15th of July. And what else did I have about that? Oh, good news. Yay. Uh, the enhanced sites, you know, we're renting an RV, a very nice luxury class A motorhome, uh, and we're going to drive it up to Oshkosh and we wanted to make sure that we got a decent site that had electricity and water. And we have a, through our connection, Gary Cunahan, who's a uh, APG listener, a community member, uh, gave me a, the information about to, of this guy named Emery Sweeney. And Emery has really helped us out a lot. He was there today when it opened up for the Camp Schuler. Is it Schuler or Schuler? Schuler, I think. Um, campground opened up uh, this morning at 7 o'clock Central Time. And the enhanced sites were available to be uh, not really reserved. It's really hard to find the term uh, because as soon as you say you want a space, you start paying for it. Requests. And request, yeah. And so he gave me a list of. Did you uh, mark and it was the kind spot? Of difficult. Like a. I, uh, he may have. Okay. I don't, I'm not sure. I didn't want to go into all that detail. Just uh, but uh, <laughs> I forgot my iPhone um, on, on the way to work yesterday. In the uh, Actually, I had it in, in the car with me, and I was really in a hurry and a rush to get to make this train so I could make it to work on time. And I realized as I got onto the train, put my bags in the luggage stowage area, and sat down, and I looked at my bag, and I was going to grab my phone, and guess what? My iPhone is still sitting in the little cradle in the... Uh, in the in the car in the parking lot of the parking garage of marta so i thought hmm maybe i can get away with not having a phone for this three-day trip and then as i was going from that station to the next i thought are you kidding yourself jeff you have all these things you all these people you have to talk to you have to put all these orders in and everything else this is not going to work so i got off at the next station and i'm thinking i'll just go catch the next train the opposite direction back and then you know this is this is going to work out and then I sat there on the station platform for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, a half an hour. And finally I went, this is not going to work. Timing is not working at all. I'm going to have to get back on the next train heading to the airport and just suck it up and 
do this three day trip without my phone. And uh, for the most part, this iPad EFB that I'm in use uh, issued has been working pretty well as a big gargantuan phone, but not perfect. But anyway, I uh, was able to contact um, Emery and he was able to find some sites for us. And I put in the re the request or purchase of the, of this uh, site uh, just a couple of hours ago and we got it. So yay, we're in, for those of you familiar with Camp Scholler, uh, we are going to be in a spot in a newer area of um, the enhanced sites or improved sites. They call them both things. And it's uh, just, uh, it's between, oh, what's the name of the street? Now I'm, it's, I'm blanking. Ah, uh, shoot. Um, Cottonwood and... Then uh, there's another main uh, north-south drag called Stitz, I think. And then another street that has a shorter name. I can't think of it anyway. Um, it's, it's, I can't really describe it. It's, it's one of the enhanced sites that we have. So our money's on it. And um, for those of you familiar with the Camp Scholler, you might have some idea of where we are. Just ask me, text me, and I'll, I'll uh, give you the exact location. So we're That's very happy about Jeff. that. Well done. Yeah. So I'm excited about that. So we don't have any, we don't have to worry about not having a spot for the RV. And Oh, and by the way, I was driving um, on my way home today next to one of those large class A motorhomes. Uh huh. <laughs> have fun. Driving it. You yeah. Mean? Yeah. It's yeah. huge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're like the size of a three story building, aren't they? <laughs> they're, they're fairly Almost. large. <laughs> <laughs> the person who why, was driving the one that I was next to was doing a very nice job of, I mean, we were moving like 10 miles to be at 10, 10 miles per hour to be fair, but, um, uh, uh -huh. yeah, I did not well, envy his, his task. Well, Captain Nick and I are going to do a bang up job. <laughs> oh yeah. That's what you I'm worried about. It's the banging and it's the banging and upping I'm worried about. <laughs> oh boy. I'm sure we'll be okay. Um, I'm, I'm looking up the darn website <laughs> address. Okay. Electric and water campsites. Improved online process. <laughs> it was mm -hmm. very confusing process, by the way. Um, and I'm still a little bit confused about it. Okay. Select from the map below. Okay. It's between Elm. See, I told you it was a short name. Elm Avenue and Cottonwood Avenue and Stitz Road. So I'm glad they those, chose uh, aviation terms for uh, a website at the airfield. Yeah, <laughs> I don't see any of uh, any of the the road names that have any aviation tie at all. Uh, Lindbergh Avenue, Elm Avenue, Cottonwood, and then well, Lindbergh's okay, isn't that? Lit, well, yeah, Lindbergh is. Yeah, that's but this true. Is, yeah. is it Lindbergh or Lindbergh? Lindbergh. Okay, so it's like Charles. Yeah, okay. so Charles. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Fair enough. Um, so we're happy. We have our uh, have our spot. Well, that Hopefully, is, it's that a good is one. Such a relief, actually, Jeff, because it could yeah. have been a nightmare if we hadn't got that. Right. Then we would be in the in the parking lot of a Kmart. <laughs> then we have so. a Walmart. Or a Walmart. <laughs> can't we at least? Get, yeah. Can't we at least go to McDonald's? <laughs> we'll get. Hopefully, the McDonald's is in the Walmart. Or a lot the of the Walmart's, lot. the super Walmart's, do have McDonald's. So you, mm -hmm. actually, it's, now that I'm thinking about it. That actually might be a better plan. <laughs> Guaranteed I wonder if it's meals. too late for me to get my our money back. Yeah. <laughs> Anywho, well, you, um, could, you could sell it on as a profit. Yeah. 
So, um, oh, look, Larry already found the Walmart. Yeah, 5402. 5402. Thanks, Larry. <laughs> um, so, for those of you who are in the area uh, live in the uh, surrounding area of Oshkosh and stuff and so you have uh, ways to help us out with various logistics and stuff uh, we will definitely be um, expecting not expecting um, appreciating your help in things if we need things because we're not going to have um, like we can't bring a, a big green egg up from Atlanta not that anybody up there has a big green egg which is a smoker but if anybody up there has something like a grill slash smoker that we can borrow. Uh, that would be wonderful. And uh, so I'm, I'm sure that if you have a golf cart, I hear that having a golf cart is really a nice thing <laughs> because otherwise you're going to do a lot of walking. By the way, where we are in Camp Scholar is kind of a, it's a ways away from all it's the activity nothing. in there. Good. Yeah. That it's near a, um, one of the new um, bathroom slash shower buildings. That's a good thing, I think, especially since, you know, we don't want Nick to be using our facility so in the RV. So, I mean, anyway, at least not kidding. for certain. Anyway. Right, yeah. Just for just for midnight emergency. That's right. <laughs> OK, um, what else? Uh, yeah, so we have hats and we have T-shirts, hopefully that will be printed in time. Uh, and again, Nico's socks. Well, you know, we're not going to go through all the items that I'm putting in my suitcase. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, and just a oh. reminder again, uh, Nick is flying in to Atlanta on Saturday. Uh, we're going to spend Sunday watching the British Grand Prix and mm -hmm. uh, other logistical um, chores. And then uh, probably leaving Atlanta on the Monday morning, the 15th, stopping by the big <laughs> fans <laughs> corporation. Uh, in Lexington, and uh, and then we're going to head up to uh, Dayton, and we'll be in Dayton hopefully Monday night, the fifteenth, yeah. And then the next day, the sixteenth, if you're in the area and you want to join up with us, we're going to be taking a tour of the U.S. Air Force Museum. I believe we have some people that listen to the show that actually work at the museum. So if you're listening, uh, please uh, let us know, and we'll try to meet up with you. That'll be a lot of fun. And then uh, either leaving that night or the next morning, probably the next day, Wednesday, uh, heading over toward uh, the Chicago area to um, pick up a uh, an RV. And then we'll drive that thing up to Oshkosh. So there you go. You're all informed. You're all up to date. And I really honestly don't know what else to say. Uh, Steph's making me feel hungry. What is she doing? Is she eating? Yeah, she's know. stuffing her face full of burger. I'm hungry. It's a sandwich. Burger. Poor girl worked all day. What did you do? Play play balls, me bowling, and uh, yeah, that's and drink. That, yeah, yeah, and oh, so and your point is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, back on track here. Uh, just a reminder: we'll uh, again put in the show notes the wonderful form uh, that. Uh, spreadsheets that Hillel came up with for uh, putting your information regarding if you're attending Oshkosh, you know, when you're arriving, where you're staying and all that kind of stuff. So we can kind of have some idea of where all the aviation podcast community members are uh, during Oshkosh. And uh, if you want to uh, keep in touch with the APG community meetups, 
make sure that you check out the ABG community calendar, which you can find if you're a Slack member, you'll be able to find it there. And it's also on our website, airlinepilotguide.com slash calendar. Now it's time coffee for fun. this week's uh, bear, coffee fun. Here we go. <laughs> Johnny, how much more coffee? No thing. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Yes, it's the coffee fun. We're singing the Java Jive. Actually, Jeff Smith is much better than I am. And that's because we're going to talk about those fine folks who are part of our Coffee Fund Club or Coffee Fund Cadre who contribute financially to the show to help us offset some of the cost of doing the show and to help us out when we have meetups and such. And a couple different ways to do that. One is the Coffee Fund Classic method via PayPal. You can do a one-time or recurring donation with that service. And since the last episode, we've had a few people do that. They are Pavel Wynarski. Wigner Orngwonson, Gail Lucas, Jason Kuntz, and Mazus Karim. And the other way, oh, thank you guys for, for doing that. We do appreciate it. And we also have the other way of becoming um, contributors to the show, and that is via Patreon. You can become a patron of the show via patreon.com. And since the last episode, we have no new patrons, which is fine, uh, but that's another way to do it, where you can kind of pledge a certain amount per show and then uh yeah it's our your way to help us out financially so if you're interested in doing that please head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee stand by for news All right, we start off with some sobering news. Uh, A skydiving airplane uh, crashes in Oahu, Hawaii, killing 11. This is from cbsnews.com. A small twin-engine plane used for skydiving crashed in the Hawaiian island of Oahu on Friday, killing all 11 people aboard, authorities said. The Federal Aviation Administration initially believed there were nine people on board, but have since revised that number. Names and ages of the victims weren't immediately released. The King airplane burst into flames upon hitting the ground near the Dillingham airfield around 6.30 p.m. local time. The airfield will remain closed until further notice, according to officials. All nine passengers were pronounced dead at the scene. There were six employees and three customers in the flight. Now, wait a minute. This is back to nine. So this must be some earlier information. Um, Anyway, total of 11 people uh, killed in this crash. Uh, the King Air was a uh, November 256TA, a six, uh, Beechcraft 65-A90. So it was a, a smaller King Air, not one of the super King Airs, uh, 65-A90 King Air. And uh, so we have some information about that as well. Um, 
there had been some focus on this particular airplane by the media because it had been involved in some kind of a incident where there was a stall spin and uh, the airplane recovered or the pilot recovered the airplane. But um, I think the part of the rudder or the whole rudder came off or part of the horizontal stabilizers, big pieces of the airplane came off during that incident. And I think that was in California and I'm not sure how long ago it was, but I'm not so sure that that had anything to do with this accident, which was a takeoff accident. So not, I don't think we have any updated information on this. Yeah. I haven't seen any. Um, yeah. Skydiving world is pretty small. I don't know anyone personally who was affected by that, but I know folks who know folks who do. Um, and I just haven't seen any additional information as to causes or information. So, Okay. Well, if we hear anything new, uh, by the way, the uh, I, I'll mention his YouTube channel again, Blanco Lirio, Juan Brown. I couldn't remember his last name uh, last week. Uh, Juan Brown's uh, YouTube channel. He uh, talked about this as well, and then he got, got into uh, a little bit about uh, stalls and spins and that sort of thing. Um, and he also has a, uh, he just put out a new uh, video yesterday regarding the a little bit of news regarding the FAA pilots uh, testing some of the changes in the Mac software, and they were going through some things, and there was some kind of a new concern about a microprocessor or something or other or something or other. And uh, he kind of explains uh, what they were actually talking about, um, not what the news was saying uh, it was, but uh, you know, more of a pilot's uh, understanding of systems and how they impact how we go about flying airplanes. So again, check out uh, the Blanco Lirio channel. I think that you'll appreciate what he does. Um, anyway, anything else to say about that first item, the uh, skydiving plane crash, this the King Air? You know, I, I used to uh, fly parachute jumpers in skydiving uh, airplanes. I think it was in 1958, maybe 59, Cessna 182, then I moved over to the Platus Porter um, and flew, you know, parachute jumpers on that. And Dr. Seth, you, you probably know mm-hmm. that um, <clears throat> the equipment isn't always the uh, It's not the isn't newest, always the latest and greatest. Latest and, latest and greatest. <laughs> and, you know, again, just like anything else, it, it comes down to money. And uh, I, I don't want to speculate on this because I'm not... Uh, but I do have to say that, uh, you know, anybody that skydives out there knows that the equipment out there isn't always the greatest. And uh, sometimes. Uh, yeah. In um, fairness to this particular drop zone, um, as far as I know, excellent safety record. And um, we're good at maintenance and upkeep of the aircraft they were operating. So, And, yeah, most, and, and the, the vast and, majority are, but still they're generally older aircraft. And, uh, yeah. yeah, they're, they're older aircraft. They're a little bit more worn, and uh, and I'm not saying anything, mm-hmm. you know, to the to the fact. And of course, uh, you know, where the issue occurred uh, first time on the airplane was over there in California. So, um, you know, you can just go on the maintenance records on the aircraft, and and it's just uh, it's a tragic tragic situation, um, and sad. And knowing that I you know was in the business as well, uh, and knowing the risks involved. Uh, very much uh, saddened by by the lost. I don't know Fred Odom. I have no idea who that is. Fred so, quit anyways. calling during the show. 
No, very kidding. rude. Some rude. Some rude. And you know, um, <clears throat> at least where where I do um, sports skydiving, once a year in March, um, and actually this is a United States Parachute Association sponsored deal where they do a safety day, and you get together with um, pretty much all the folks who are involved in running the drop zone, from the pilots to the safety um, and training advisors to the people who are dealing with a lot of the gear and equipment. And one of the big things is aircraft safety for uh, for the jumpers so that they know what to do in an emergency. Um, and there's a lot of different um, uh, things to consider just in different phases of flight. Um, you know, it's one of those things where, especially if you're uh, always, you're going to listen to what the, the pilot says. That's that's first and foremost. Um, but do's and don'ts of hmm? really. Is that really? Is that why? Yeah. Is, is that why they fart just before they leave the airplane? Yes. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Uh, that's just a physiologic occurrence when you, you know. That's yeah, I know. It, 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 no, it, but I mean, in an emergency, <laughs> you know, generally you're going to you're going to listen to the pilot unless they're incapacitated in some form, because they may want you get, to get out of the aircraft if you can, um, even at a lower altitude than expected. They may want you to stay with the airplane and try to land with it. Um, you know, and they talk a lot about how not to move around and shift around too much to change uh, uh, weight and balance, center of gravity, all of that, all that. So. Um. Yeah. There's yeah. I mean, and, and and the reality the reality is 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 there are very few, very few. you know very very few aircraft accidents in the skydiving yeah. world. So it, it is more of a unusual circumstance because you know truth be told, uh, you know the, there is cost cutting. However, uh, you know it, everything is maintained because. Uh, you know, the owner of the dive operation or any one of its employees and all the people that, you know, get on the aircraft, uh, well, they're on the aircraft. So, uh, you know, they're not, they generally don't really cut corners per se. Um, and quite honestly, just like you were talking about, uh, Dr. Steph, is I used to brief people on that. And, and you know, as long as you have, they, they unfortunately went in at the most critical right. time of the flight and there's nothing anybody could do to get out of that right. air, airplane i mean even if you have 500 feet thousand feet uh, not ideal obviously to bail out if if the airplane's you know out of control but uh, certainly better chance to survive immediately you know putting your parachute no. out than yeah than going depends, down depends on a lot of things but there to be honest so that's probably not depends, enough that's probably on not a lot enough of things certainly most sport jumpers depends but yeah so but you know, I'm I'm, I'm just yeah, using no, no, that as an example. I, I mean, certainly, if the airplane's nosing into the ground, you, you have zero chance at that point. So, um, and that was the most critical part of the flight. So, unfortunately, we lost uh, some really good people in the jump community. Okay, thank you for your insight, both of you. Um, we'll move on to the second item in our news folder, and that is from FlightGlobal.com. An investigation is underway into a fatal collision involving a pair of German Air Force Eurofighter combat aircraft near Rostock on 24 June. The two jets were part of a formation of three single-seat single Eurofighters from the Luftwaffe's 73 Squadron, which had taken off for a training flight from their base at Rostock Airport, close to the Baltic Sea. One of the pilots died during the accident, while the other, an instructor, was rescued alive. Both pilots operated the ejection seat following a contact between the two aircraft around 20 minutes into the flight. The pilot of the third aircraft involved in the mission observed two parachutes descending to the ground. None of the, none of the jets were equipped with weapons. German broadcaster ARD reports 
that wreckage from the two aircraft was found approximately 5.4 nautical miles apart in the Miritz Lake District area in the northeast of the country. The flight data recorders of both aircraft were found on the 25th of June. Uh, the, the Bundeswehr has launched an investigation into the cause of the accident. The accident represents the Bundeswehr's first loss of Eurofighter since the type's uh, introduction with the force in 2004. So, there you go. Um, again, I'm not sure if we have any updated information. And with military crashes, usually we don't hear very much except for the initial incident slash accident and then perhaps when the final report comes out. And that can be as long as a year or more before we get the final report. Plenty of uh, mid-air collisions uh, have occurred and will continue to occur in a military flying of this uh, style, Jeff. Uh, so this is uh, far from unusual. And, uh, of course, Eurofighter doesn't have any great protection to prevent this sort of thing. It, uh, when you're in close combat, it's all still uh, CMB seen. And, of course, uh, the aircraft does maneuver incredibly uh, hard, fast, uh, and build very high Gs. So, you know, you can create a large amount of closure in a very short time. And uh, despite how nimble it is, uh, of course, it's not always easy to get out of the way. So, yeah, uh, there will continue to be these style of accidents, and they are incredibly tragic. Funnily enough, um, I still intend to interview uh, Wibble, a lovely uh, friend of mine, a navigator who was involved in a mid-air uh, collision. And uh, he was quite badly injured in the ejection because uh, very high speed. And he's got quite a story to tell. So I'm hoping I'll be able to turn that into a plain tale. But this is just another tragic uh, you know, occurrence. Uh, and it displays the risks involved in military flying. It's, it's not a... A, um, a job to go into uh, if you are risk averse. So true. <laughs> Very much so. All right. Thank you for your input. Uh, a lot of experience uh, flying in that, that regime. Um, item C. Uh, William and Chris and Steve and probably more of you out there sent in links to this story. American Airlines announces schedule of final MD-80 revenue flights. On September 4th, American Airlines will retire its last 26 McDonnell Douglas MD-80 aircraft. The MD-80, also known as the Super 80, was the workhorse of the airline's fleet throughout the 1980s and beyond, providing, I should say, through the 1980s and beyond, providing customers and team members with heartfelt memories on adventures ranging from family vacations to key business trips. It's a bittersweet but well-earned retirement as American celebrates the aircraft's history while modernizing its fleet. Below is the schedule of the final revenue flights on the Mad Dog before their desert farewell ferry flights to Roswell, New Mexico. And they have a table here with all the flights. And as mentioned in the article, looks like they're mostly occurring on the 4th of September, a couple on the 3rd. And uh, looks like the last one is a flight from Dallas-Fort Worth and, uh, or to Dallas-Fort Worth, I can't tell. Here. Probably. Departure, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Nice uh, and, uh, flight number on that one. Do you notice it? Oh, flight 80. 80. Yeah, Aww. very clever. <laughs> yeah. 
I didn't notice it, actually. Thank you. I, I'm surprised you didn't yeah. notice that. That's like the first thing I noticed. That's the first thing I noticed. Yeah. <laughs> well, on today's show, I'm not noticing many things. I'm just kind of discombobulated. So. It's all right. We're, oh, we're looking out thank for you. it. Thank you. It's okay. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, in fact, I had to turn off the video because uh, this... Is the audio any better? Am I still Skyping out or uh, is uh, it better now? It's better-ish. It's slightly better. Oh, shoot. Yeah. <laughs> it's not perfect, but it's fine. But it's okay. understandable. Yeah. All right. And then uh, the next item in the folder is uh, we talked about that not this incident, not accident, actually, not very long ago. Um, the preliminary report of the New York City helicopter crash. And... Uh, uh, basically, you remember the crash and they said, oh, the, the brother of the pilot said he was a hero because he purposely crashed into the top of this building, preventing any damage or loss of life to anybody else. Well, uh, basically, the report, uh, which we'll include in the show notes and against just the preliminary report, uh, the top of the skyscrapers were completely obscured. He was still in IMC conditions, instrument meteorological conditions. Uh, without an instrument rating, he was confused and disoriented, most likely, and did not purposely crash into the top of this building. He just came falling out of the sky and just happened to land squarely on top of this building, which is a good thing because he, uh, well, it was not a good thing for him. He died in the crash and destroyed the helicopter, but nobody else was injured or died in the uh, in the accident. And so, uh, again, we'll have a link to this preliminary report in our show notes. And then finally, from Moscow, two people were killed and seven injured when an Antonov AN-24 passenger plane made an emergency landing on Thursday at an airport in Russia's Buryatia region in Siberia. I don't know. Uh, the area's emergency situations ministry said. Uh, the plane carrying 48 people, including five crew members, overshot the runway after landing, hit a small building, and caught fire, regional authorities said. The aircraft took off from the regional cap- capital of Ulan Ude and flew to, wow, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that word, uh, a, a city beginning with N, where it was forced to make an emergency landing when one of its engines failed, they said. Video shot by a passenger from a plane window showed the aircraft coming into land on the runway before rolling into a field and then suddenly violently halting with passengers screaming on board. Regional authorities said a pilot and technician had been killed in the accident, but all passengers had been safely evacuated before a fire destroyed the plane. Uh, Now, uh, did you all have a chance or any of you have a chance to look at this uh, cell phone video that was taken on this? I did watch that. Yeah, I sure did. Too. It, you know, to me, it didn't look it looked pretty normal. Like it looked fine. And the, then all of a sudden they were in the grass and then they didn't slow down. And then they yeah. just kept running into things. Yeah. And then the screaming started and then the camera, you know, just, I guess, got dislodged from the person's hand. Uh, it looked like a very rough ride toward the end. Yes. That's I mean, that's when they impacted, of course. Yeah. And who knows what caused the uh, aircraft to. Uh, Overrun. Uh, lose control. Yeah. I mean, because it was apparently just an engine out. Yeah. I, maybe it has something to do with, I've never flown a turboprop, so I don't know if you have an engine out and you're using, what do you, do you reverse the prop? Uh, well, you, you go into beta. beta. You go into beta. That's when you go into reverse, mm-hmm. but of course you can get it into a neutral. 
a neutral state just like you can with uh, uh, any, well, most constant speed props you get into a neutral state. So it's feathered. Uh-huh. That's the actual word. Um, so it shouldn't cause that much of an issue. I don't, I don't know why when they landed that they lost control. I don't know if they lost steering or mm-hmm. had hydraulic issues. I oh, mean, or, you know, they tried, may have tried to go into beta and pull the aircraft off the side of the runway. I, I, you know, or maybe the runway is wet, slippery. You know, there's a whole lot of uh, contingencies there that could cause the aircraft to depart the, 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 the surface. And, you know, maybe they couldn't get the aircraft stopped. You know, maybe they had hydraulic issues associated with the, the loss of the engine. There's a whole gamut in that, that aircraft. I think of the airframe was built in the 70s, if I remember correctly. Um, so there's there's a lot of older technology. So I don't know, uh, you know, with it being a Russian bird as to, you know, what they may or may not have. Mm-hmm. But it's, uh, you know, it, it can't be much different than a Brasilia. You know, that's why I flew as far as a turboprop. So, I mean, the turboprop's a turboprop. If you remember, so. I know it's been a... a quite a while since you've flown it uh on a turboprop mm-hmm. airplane uh like the brasilia when you have an engine out um do you kind of plan to use the other engine in beta or or no no just kind of no i mean the the, the effect of braking i mean yes i mean it depends. well okay it depends on the, the runway length mm-hmm. and that i don't know you know at that airport what the runway length mm-hmm. is uh but if you need to you can pull it but I wouldn't. I mean, the braking, the, eff- the effectiveness of the braking, just like in, in our aircraft, uh, you know, it's all predicated based, the, the performance is all predicated based on using braking, mm-hmm. not in- including the reverse. Mm-hmm. So really, I don't think they should have gone into beta, but it sure seems like they they did mm-hmm. um, and pulled the aircraft off gotcha. the runway. That, that's my initial thought. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay. Well, if we learn any more about that, accident will certainly let you all know it was quite an old machine though jeff i mean mm-hmm. they were designed in uh, 57 first flew in 62 and they stopped production in 1979 so are you talking about the man dog again yeah yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah what i'm saying was it's uh, it's quite an old machine <laughs> okay <laughs> right well disguised. you are too <laughs> and i am too yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am going who's making the comment there. <laughs> who's calling the kettle black, sir? Yeah. Very much so. So, yeah, that that might be a factor, as you uh, as you say, because, uh, you know, something that old uh, may not be in the best shape in the world. Who knows? Although, we do know people that fly airplanes who were built long before that, uh, like those DC-3s and C-47s that seem to be in pretty good shape, but they get special special pampering, I think, more so than... Probably this old AN-24 got. Okay. Uh, Let's move on to one of the better parts of the show. Captain, incoming message. All right. This from Toby. Hello, APG crew. My name is Toby, and I am the chief engineer for Acme... Ricola in East Africa, currently based in Nairobi. I started listening to your podcast about five months ago, uh, got to it via Nick's Plane Tales, and as my commute to the airport can be anything between one and two hours, depending on traffic, for for only 20 miles. What? <laughs> Did I misread that? One to two hours for 20 miles. Wow. Uh, no, the, no the, uh, the city, Nairobi is pretty busy. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. 
I don't mind the show to be a hefty three hours. Well, thank you, Toby. Uh, it's my first feedback, and I quickly wanted to write in because I can connect to each of you guys through some stations in my career. I'll start with Dr. Steph. I started my apprenticeship in a GA, uh, MRO, so that's like general aviation maintenance uh, refurbishment something. Overhaul. Is that right? Overhaul? I'm not sure about the, the R. R. Repair. Uh, repair, maybe. Maintenance, repair, repair and overhaul. Repair, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, repair okay. and overhaul. In uh, Bremen, mainly dealing with Beach Bonanza, Baron, and King Air aircraft. So I got my fair share of the GA world. Excellent. Uh, Captain Jeff, I was based in Chicago O'Hare for three years and got to learn your American system of seniority, which you discuss frequently on the show. American Airlines was still going strong with their mad dogs at the time, and occasionally I came across an Acme mad dog as well. Captain Dana, I guess for you the same as for Jeff applies, but at times your Jewish background was mentioned, and Micah once uh, did a wonderful audio about Yiddish words that we all know. It brings me back to my five years in Tel Aviv, a wonderful station. That's TLV. And finally, Captain Nick. I do connect in two ways. Firstly, I am doing lots of photography as well, and you will find my pictures published in a Swiss aviation magazine named after a strong North Atlantic wind as well as in the traditional prop liner magazine from the UK. I'm sure you know it, Nick. Um, uh, sadly, I'm sorry, I don't know that magazine, either of them. So, uh, Strong North Atlantic Wind. Uh, would, no? it be, would it be Jetstream? Uh, well, yeah, but Jetstreams aren't just North Atlantic, they're That's true. everywhere. Yeah. Uh, but there you go. Um, it could be. Okay. Uh, secondly, though, I do connect through my current station, NBO, I guess that's Nairobi, where VC-10s used to be a common site, East African Airways, BOAC, and also I do recall that Nick mentioned that his father took his British United VC-10 into NBO and that this landing was featured in a movie or documentary. Yes, it was. It was in a, a movie, Born Free, all about the uh, Born lion cubs. Born Free. That's the one. Yeah, very <laughs> much so. All right. Well, obviously, that was all before my time and way before I took that posting three years ago. But the old Mbakasi Airport is still part of MBO. The tarmac is used as a storage area and hosts plenty of interesting aircraft, L-1011, DC-8, B-727, DC-9, etc., and the old terminal and tower are now used by the military, whereas the old East African hangar belongs to Kenya Airways now. To close the circle here and uh, finish the hopefully interesting feedback, next to the stored aircraft, there is still a number of second-generation jets and props going strong. East African flies DC-10, I mean DC-9-10, the oldest operating passenger jet in airline service in the world, and DC-9-30. Uh, Astral Aviation and Safe Air keep their B-727 busy, and the wonderful sound of Rolls-Royce Dart engines can be heard from active F-27 and one remaining HS-748. I guess that's a Hawker, Hawker Sidley 748? Exactly right, yeah, some, yeah. Uh, Andover. Hawker is what you said, yes. Yes. Okay. 
Holka. It was Holka. well, it was cut off Holka. here, Holka. and it my brain totally heard uh, something different. Anyway. I, was trying, I was trying to pronounce it. Uh, I would say hawker, but uh, then Nick would um, correct me and say, "No, it's hawker." Well, I would just well, correct him back and say it's only a matter of pronunciation. Hawker Sidley. <laughs> okay, uh, so I guess all you guys would love it here. Not to mention the domestic airport, Wilson, where the traditional East African Aero Club is located. Nick, ask your dad. I'm sure he knows that place. I don't know. The I, East I'm African sure Aero does. Club. Yeah. I'm sure it's somewhere they used to go for a beer or two. Or three. Or three. Keep up the great work. And even though your show could need some inputs from an engineer at times, the accuracy level is just about right. <laughs> and I am happy, happy to be part of the well, APG community. That should yes. suit the average engineer, then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. Without ever having met one of you or the members in person yet. Well, you're going to have to change that, Toby. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll, we'll have to meet up with you sometime. I'm not sure when we're going to have a meetup in Nairobi, but you never know. Maybe you'll be somewhere else in the world where we will have a meetup. Again, that's uh, Toby from Nairobi. Oh, that rhymes. Yeah. And uh, let's see. Jeff, you should really either pronounce cadre in a way that Nick would as, uh, oh, that Nick would, or rename it to club as you already suggested. So how would you say it, Nick? Cadre. It's just as you just did. <laughs> okay. I was going to say, I think they actually pronounced that word similarly. <laughs> I don't really hear a difference there, but okay. Like um, no, there isn't. No, no, no difference whatsoever. Okay, good. And then Nick, uh, you should you eat or... Let's see. Should you or either of the crew be interested in some images backing up my feedback? Please let me know. I will then provide the pictures accordingly. Oh, we could always put some in uh, on the website. Thank yeah. you very much, dear Toby. So send um, send some over, and send uh, Jeff will include them. I certainly will. Would love to see some pictures. All right. Item two and feedback. Ahmad. Uh, runway overshooting due to poor braking action on wet runways. That's his self-titled uh, feedback here. I've been hearing about this problem and it keeps repeating itself of being solved. No, I've been hearing about this problem and it keeps repeating itself instead of being solved. This leads me to believe that I don't have a thorough understanding of the mechanics involved when it occurs. I'd appreciate any APG or especially Miami Rick. Okay, hang on. Miami Rick. Miami Rick. Are you are there? No, it's just me. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just curious as to why Hello left the thing his name. <laughs> I crack myself up sometimes. Wow. <laughs> I feel uh, like I have to, we should oh, apologize yeah. to Hillel for that terrible impersonation. <laughs> yeah, sorry, <laughs> Sounds nothing like what Hillel actually sounds I need, like. You know, I need to get Hillel just to uh, record some exclamations of various sorts and then I'll yeah. just put that in the soundboard. Um, so you'll all know exactly how Hillel sounds, which is nothing like I imitate him. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Miami Rick, I uh, don't think he's going to help us out with this. So although Miami Rick, if you're listening, uh, you know, send some feedback. Anyway, so I'd appreciate any APG -er illustrating what goes on during overshoots on wet runways for landing rollouts, how and why it happens. My impression is due to my limited knowledge that during landing rollouts, thrust reversers are used to bleed off lift-rich airspeed to expedite restoration of weight on wheels. Wow. That helps wheel brakes when it's time for them to engage. Reduce workload of wheel brakes or service brakes. A bit of a 
a bit by reducing ground speed up to a point where thrust reverse loses pot potency. I've uh, observed that, correct me if I'm wrong, the target type reversers produ uh, produce the most potent reverse thrust, enough to f facilitate power backs using less power than other reverser types. I'm not sure what a target type is. Uh, it's uh, the bucket style. Jeff. Okay, buckets. Okay. That, yeah. that, well, then the next one, he says the next most effective or potent type is the clamshell type, which is almost like the target type. Um, but offers. But offers. Okay. But, offers. <laughs> but offers. What is that? But, oh, but differs. I'm sorry. Uh, oh, but di so it's just but a typo. It's a typo. Differs, yeah. Okay, so never, rec never seen that word before. <laughs> In that it's bucket swing within the rear nacelle while the target type has buckets that swing outside the nacelle. Oh, okay. So I think I know them as, uh, identify them as different names. But uh, the next most effective and far less effective than the previous two is the cascading type, where the rear part of the outermost nacelle section slides back to block only the bypass thrust from the N1 fan. Uh, the front fan or the low pressure fan. I'm still not sure if I'm correct about the name cascading of this reverser type. I may be confusing it with the type seen on the Airbus models, which have the little doors where the sliding section would be that pops outwards to blow vectored or deflected cold bypass air nearly forwards. Does this mean that the undeflected hot exhaust opposes the effort of the deflected cold exhaust when reverse power is applied? Is this what makes this type less potent than the clam and target types? Um, I'm really not sure about the statistics there because, uh, uh, you know, because uh, the cascading type, uh, it does only usually affect the bypass uh, air, but mm -hmm. that is a good 75% of the thrust produced and, uh, and it's significantly more than a thrust produced by a pure jet of the equivalent size. So you do get a lot of uh, thrust reverse uh, effect from uh, the cascading type. Um, so I don't know. I don't know where uh, um, Ahmed is getting his numbers from. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not I'm, sure. In my, my little investigation, I couldn't actually see a direct comparison. And of course, um, uh, you have to bear in mind that uh, Airbus have different engine manufacturers uh, on their aircraft type, so it's not Airbus uh, thrust reverse style. It's it's whoever makes the engine. They they decide how the thrust reverses work on their engine type. Mm -hmm. I think you know we can talk a lot about this. Um, the when you're landing, uh, you know his, his uh, initial uh, supposition is that the reason why we have reverse thrust is to bleed off the lift-rich airspeed. Now, that, that is true, and, and thrust reverse is most effective at the, at the initial point of touchdown uh, at the higher speeds, and then it loses its effectiveness as the airplane slows down, and then braking becomes much more effective. Uh, but what um, the second item here, he says, uh, to expedite restoration of weight on wheels, that really is the job of the spoilers, the ground spoilers that pop up, all those panels that you see on the wings, as soon as you have weight on wheels, uh, those things pop up and literally dump or spoil the lift on the wing. And so all the weight of the airplane now is on the main landing gear. And then the braking becomes much more effective. So, yes, the reverse does help slow the airplane down. But the actual uh, device uh, that, that actually, you know, puts a lot of... Um, or makes the brakes effective is the uh, the spoiler panels 
uh, once they're deployed upon landing. So, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, you're absolutely right. And the the only thing I have to comment on that is, you know, there's a significant difference uh, between the 88 and the yes. 90 in, in the the effective uh, effective efficacy or efficacy or effectiveness efficacy is the word. Yeah, effectiveness of the reversers uh, on the 88, of course, being the clamshell type versus the uh, cascading on the 90. Um, the 90 is really effective all the way down yes. uh, to pretty much a taxi speed so i would have to say that they're they're far more effective mm-hmm. than the 88 and of course the 88 uh, the clamshells are far more effective at a higher speed but you have to be very careful with the 88 because uh, if you pull too much reverse the way that the cascading the uh, the shells come out it actually blows air a little bit towards the tail and, and that's caused a lot of yeah. problems in the Blanks past out. especially on slippery slippery it blanks out the rudder exactly correct so uh you know that's not the case on the 90 and it's far more effective as a matter of fact i don't know about you jeff but i very really touched the brakes on the 90 until um we're really at a very slow speed unless i need to stop the aircraft and when you bring the reverses out of reverse into forward and it's almost like the aircraft lunges a little mm-hmm. bit because the uh, the reverse comes back you know it is being stowed so you have to be ready with the brakes on the 90 whereas the 88 uh you know the the reverses are are almost i'm not gonna say non a non-player but they're far less of a player than they are in the 90. i agree uh, exactly my um my experience as well in fact the first time that i flew an md90 and I put the thrust reverse out. I thought the first officer must have put his feet on the brake pedals and put the brakes on because it was that kind of a deceleration. And I'm thinking, wow, I've never, ever felt deceleration like that ever in an airplane <laughs> with re- with reverse thrust. So they're very effective in the 90. And it's all, as uh, you say, Akhamad, uh, the bypass air that uh, is being deflected. And as Nick mentioned, you know, it's a, a good 75% or more of the thrust that you're getting out of the engine so that might be why it, it's just more effective um let's see did we miss anything else um oh, he went on a little bit more let's see i know that extended application of reverse thrust below 60 knots increases the risk of foreign object damage or dirty water ingestion especially on low hanging engines uh, the reason why the a380s outbound engines lack reverse or lack reversers. Yeah, and that's uh, that's a good point. You know, those engines are way out there over sometimes extending beyond the runway surface and the unprepared surfaces, and you don't want to be sucking up stuff or blowing all that kind of stuff to cause foreign object damage. And I guess, was that true also with the A340, Nick? Uh, yeah, we're, we're in a rejected takeoff, which is uh, quite a, a uh, obviously uh, a semi-emergency maneuver. Um, we allow to use thrust reverses right up to the aircraft comes to a halt, but you, it's an acceptable risk because uh, you know you, if, even if you damage the aircraft, you you could do worse if you run off the runway. Uh, but on normal landing, we would uh, cancel them at around uh, seventy knots. Uh, sorry, uh, bring them back to idle at around 70 knots and cancel them around 30 knots. What about uh, the, uh, how far out are the engine pods on the on the A340? Are they uh, like outside of the runway lateral boundary? 
or kind they, of depends on the width of the runway. They like a normal uh, should be on a normal runway. They should be within the bit width of the runway if okay. you're on the center line. But of course, not everyone lands on the center line. They're certainly not within the width of the taxiway. And do they uh, all the all four engines have reversers on the uh, three? Yeah, on the three forty. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Oh, the out outboard ones have interlocks, so. You can only engage them if both engine reversers have operated correctly. So if you get one reverser that throws a fault, the other reverser will be inhibited. Okay. That's just to prevent it, a big yaw. You know, and he, he talks a little bit further down here, Jeff. I don't know if you've gotten this far, but that, you know, talking about the length of, of rollout in or, you know, um, whether the reverses would be effective in uh, reducing the overruns of aircraft. Well, a lot of that has to do with, uh, you know, friction mm -hmm. and whether you're hydroplaning. Yes. How heavy, how heavy the precipitation is, what type of precipitation is, what type of reverses you have available to you, and you know the factors that uh, you know are, are calculated on runway length are not are not based on using reverses at all. Mm -hmm. So. Um, ES reverses do help you, and it really depends on what type of reverses that you have available to you and how much hydroplaning you have going on and what type of precipitation you have out there. So, And also another factor is a touchdown. Uh, how far down the runway in the touchdown zone are you or you beyond the touchdown zone? Because then, you know, even max braking with max reverse and, and, and spoilers deployed, um, you may not have enough braking energy uh, to be able to stop the aircraft by the end of the runway, depending on how long the runway is. And, you know, there have been instances, and I won't mention anything about Little Rock, but, you know, where the spoilers were not armed, so that effectively uh, kept the aircraft flying and didn't break the tension on the hydroplane to help the aircraft uh, stop and put friction on, on, the, uh, on the runway. So without the spoilers deploying, the aircraft was still you know, uh, effectively flying in ground uh, ground effect and it reducing the braking efficiency of the aircraft. So there are a lot of factors that can come into this. Yeah, and I think um, it's, uh, I think everybody would agree that the, probably the most effective device that we have when we're landing uh, is uh, are the ground spoilers and the fact spoilers. that they they spoil the lift and give you all that effective braking. And, and how many on how many nice landings do they ruin anyways? Oh, I know the auto spoiler Lots system. Uh, you know, at least on our airplane, uh, or definitely, like you know, if you you're, if you're not landing completely level and you have like one of the wings up, it's just not going to be a good landing. Yeah, uh, yep. that was a nice thing about the seven twenty seven that had uh, manual spoiler deployment, and of course it depended on the captain because it was a captain's job to deploy the spoilers on the landing roll and. As I've said many times on the show, that a captain could make a good landing bad and a bad landing good. It just all depended on the skill and timing of the deployment of the spoilers on that airplane. Uh, and uh, another uh, kudos to the engineers of that wonderful airplane that you have on your shirt, Dana. Uh, they did an, an amazing job, and I'm, I'm supposing that many other airplanes out there also have this kind of engineering, where uh, the airplane, the L-1011, knew when you touch down, which uh, main landing gear was in touch with the runway because it could sense the wheel spin up and uh, strut compression on that side of the airplane. And it would say, okay, I'm going to deploy the spoilers completely on this side, but on the side where I'm not sensing that the main gear 
and main gear wheels are on the runway, I'm going to deploy, deploy that side a little bit, but not so much that you can't control the uh, nice, smooth lowering of that wing uh, until the other main gear gets down on the ground. It senses the strut compression and the wheel spin up, and then on that side, all the ground spoilers and everything come out to make a very, very nice uh, landing. That was one of many reasons why it was very difficult to make a bad landing in that airplane. Isn't that nice of them? Yeah. Yeah, more fuel to the fire that the L-1011 is probably the best commercial airliner, in my opinion, ever built. Yeah, it was a wonderful airplane to fly. And I, I don't think I've ever met anybody that has flown it that has said that it was not a good airplane to fly. But... A lot of great airplanes out there, that's for sure, though. <coughs> Excuse me. I have something in my throat. <coughs> ah, wish I had a cough button. <laughs> if only. If only. If only. Sorry. Mine's not hooked maybe up, this, so I just have to be quick on the maybe mute this beer, switch. This beer will help. Beer helps <clears throat> everything. Yeah, they'll quote you through it. <sighs> I'm, that L ten eleven, the engineers uh, really choked me up on that. Yeah, that's exactly <sighs> what it was. Just I was crying a little bit. You can't see me because the video's off, but I have tears. I really do. <laughs> tears I, I don't blame you. I mean, you know, in in all honesty, Jeff. I mean, I know I never got to fly the airplane as a line pilot, mm-hmm. but I had a unique opportunity as a uh, as a ground school instructor to be able to utilize. Uh, different equipment that we had in the sim bays, and I ha- actually had quite a bit of uh, time in the L ten eleven sim. Yeah, so you got much even the though same I never effect. got to fly. Yeah, yeah. Even though I never got to fly the airplane in real life, and of course uh, back then it was a level C slash D. It wasn't the the greatest technology mm-hmm. uh, as far as sim uh, sim technology and visuals go, but certainly got the experience of flying the aircraft and. Even to this day, every airplane I've ever flown never it it, it it can't compare. It's just such a beautiful airplane to operate. So, and that's you know, and I'm feel very fortunate because most people are you know like you, you know, actually flying the airplane, and then myself that had the opportunity to at least experience the airplane. Uh, you know, I'm I'm I'm, I'm among the lucky few, I think. Yeah. And uh, that number is going to continue to dwindle as time moves on, which is sad. There's a couple of questions I don't think we quite covered on Ahmed's. Uh, oh, I know did we skip some a okay. while. Um, he he asks why we wouldn't, uh, if we're having problem with directional control, use uh, differential thrust reverse uh, to keep the aircraft straight. Well, obviously it only works on uh, aircraft with engines out or pods on the wings so jeff's aircraft wouldn't work because the thrust line's too close to the fuselage um I disagree yeah okay. actually it it does have an effect i actually disagree with you it is does it have an effect through the all you have to do is look at the accident in laguardia and that's actual per uh, actual true proof that if you have too much reverse on one engine it's, it's going to pull you right off the off but the again runway. that was right. also Why? the the other factor though in that one dana is the fact that it blanked out the rudder and it, the yeah, rudder was that, no longer effective uh, are you are right. you going very tight pacific or just general here because generally if your engines are very close to the uh the center, center of gravity yeah. and they're they're close in then you're not going to get a, a differential thrust effect from them, are you? Not as well. Yeah. I, 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 go ahead. I'm sorry. I have the the uh, <laughs> Julie's home. 
I'm sorry, Julie's home. <laughs> and I apologize right. for that. That's okay. But I was right in the middle of thought yeah. there. Uh, you know, I, I would I would uh, agree that it, it it would be very much type specific because on the uh, 88, it's a lot different from the 90. Um, yeah. Okay, so can we go more generic here? Because he's not asking about particular types. He's just asking right. about does it work? Yeah, right. and, and generally on airliners, you have to have the engines out on the wings for you to get enough differential thrust for you to change the direction of the aircraft. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but no, it's not a practical uh, option, really, because uh, by the time you've powered the engines up and down, there's a significant lag. Uh, you're reducing the overall uh, retardation effect. And whilst you might point the aircraft in the right direction, there's, you know, the, the inertia line is going where the aircraft is drifting, just pointing it in the right direction, getting the nose to swing around won't affect the overall direction that the aircraft is going if it's lost traction on the on the wheels it's just going to skid mm -hmm. off uh even if you can twist the airplane around and point it 180 degrees around it's not really gonna help so that's the answer to that bit and uh the other one was um uh, if braking action is poor why postpone the idling of the thrust reverse well we covered that to a certain extent fod and also the fact that the thrust reverse has relatively little effect at low speed so you know that's you're not gaining a lot by uh, keeping that full thrust reverse out but if it's an emergency you're going to run the runway right. you can yeah i mean if if it's inevitable the airplane is going to go off the you might as well give it a shot <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and try exactly. to use as much as you can but as nick yeah. mentions the use of um differential reverse thrust is as far as i know no airline recommends uh, trying to do that because you're just going to find yourself um, exacerbating the problem. Yeah. Did I use that right, Steph? Which one? Exac exacerbating? Yeah, to make worse. I think I did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Good. Sounds All right. a bit rude to me. <laughs> no. that, that, what that should I use for, uh, for RH and uh, AG? Um, for, for making it worse. There we go. <laughs> Small words, monosyllabic, please. Let's not, let's not get fancy. Uh, I love you guys. I hope you know that. Okay. Um, are, are we ready to move on? I'm ready. Sorry, <laughs> okay. I, had, I had absolutely nothing to contribute to that entire conversation. There. Yeah, well, you don't have a lot of experience using reverse thrust. Zero. Well, yeah. Close to zero. <laughs> but. Okay. Um, Kelly writes in and says... I'm not sure if I'm sending this request to the right spot, but I'll give it a try. My husband is an avid listener of the podcast. We have listened to many episodes on the way to Dayton. My father lives there, and he flies for FedEx. Less than an hour ago, he became a private pilot. Congratulations, Hello, Kelly. Marvelous, no. marvelous. I mean, I'm sorry, not Kelly. Way to go, Pavel. <laughs> Kelly did not. She's not a new private pilot. Her husband is. No, anyway. but no father. Father. Oh no, wow. her man. I, no, I think it's his, her husband. No, I think no, no, her no, husband. Her husband. It's very confusing. Yeah. Her father. That's right. I'm his sorry. Father, I, I no, went too far. Father, yeah. There's a lot far. of family <laughs> going on here. That's yes. Yeah. We're very confused. Uh, unfortunately, I can't be with him to celebrate as I'm in Poland with his family and our son. I know you occasionally give shout outs for these kinds of aviation milestones, and it would really make his day for one. His name is Pavel Wanierski, 
the W in his first name is pronounced like a V. Oh, she gave me a nice little pronunciation guide. Uh, first, first name is pronounced like a V, or you could say Paul. No, I'm going to say Pavel. And uh, also, he's very disappointed. Vinyarski? Pavel Vinyarski? Uh, oh, that's right. Vin, Vinyarski, I think, maybe. I don't are know both, if you'd say Are both W's pronounced as V's? Well, I don't know. I bet. I Kelly, Kelly, help us out here. Kelly. Yeah. I mean, I don't didn't. Now didn't give us enough information, Kelly. So. We're doing our best, though. But she's tried, yes, you know, yes, yes. To, to give us a pronunciation guide. But you know what would be even better, Kelly? To record some audio feedback and send yes. it in. Oh, yeah, that would be cool. Then you could say it exactly the way it's pronounced. Yeah. Anyway, he's also very disappointed to be missing your visit to the Dayton Air Force Museum, as he will be joining us in Poland during that time. Oh, that's a shame. It would have uh, been nice to meet, uh, meet your husband, Kelly. Uh, last, I want to say that listening to the podcast is enjoyable for us non-aviation people. Thank you so much, Kelly Vinyarski. <laughs> I think. Kelly. <coughs> uh, We're glad that you find it enjoyable also as a non-aviation person. I think I was reading some other feedback. I don't know if it's uh, in today's feedback lineup or not that was uh, made, made the same point, which really made me smile, that uh, there are people out there that enjoy listening to us, the uh, four of us here on the the regular hosts, um, talk about things that they're not really interested in, but we it's still entertaining and enjoyable to listen to us banter on about stuff. Very good. Well, they live in some kind of institution, these people? Why? What did I say? No, no, I'm just saying that oh. they, they live in an institution, in these people who... <laughs> Are you in front? <laughs> Are you inferring they're institutionalized? <laughs> well, they That's insulting be. our listeners. And in turn, just insulting us because why, why someone who's not interested in aviation would listen to us. I'm just wondering if they were just ever so slightly mad. Oh, they might be. Yes. No, they like good entertainment. You know, I, well, I can understand that. I've, I've listened to shows before where they're talking about a subject that I'm really not interested in, but the, the presentation, the way style. they talk about yeah. it, yeah, the, pa the, the and the passion they have about it, and the interaction between the people is so entertaining and enjoyable. I, I don't mind listening to it. I'll all this, all this to say, <sighs> congratulations, Pavel. <clears throat> yes, that's the most important thing. Big shout out to Pavel. Yay! Yay. Pavel, awesome! Yay. Yay! All right, welcome to the wonderful world of flying. Yes, and uh, can't wait to hear directly from Pavel and hear about his. Uh, Aviation adventures. Absolutely. Okay. Wow. This little whatever is in my throat is really it's hanging on. <clears throat> yeah, it's not clearing. Hmm. Okay. Why don't it's a family show, folks? I'm not going to say one word. That's good, and probably shouldn't have said that either. Um, let's uh, go with uh, Steph. Okay. Would you like to read item number four? I would be delighted to read. Okay, item thank four. you. This is from Andy. He has a question about airline lighting. Hello, some of my favorite aviators. I'm not sure who his other favorite favorite aviators are, but it's not us apparently. What? Sorry if you have covered this before, but I was wondering if you could talk about how you utilize your lights and what co uh, what company common procedures are between the different airlines. Can you please cover both day and night operations and what lights need to be working to be airworthy on an airliner? Hoping to solo as soon as my medical gets sorted out, your show is a service to the pilot community. Cheers. Andy from Cincinnati. Well, who wants to start? Well, I mean, <clears throat> we actually do use our lights continuously in the same way, both day and night. Um, and that is uh, 
We have to have wingtip uh, lights, uh, both the green and the red available, and also um, our wingtip uh, aft lights, which are the white lights, and then the strobes available. Now, as far as what specifically we need, I'd actually have to refer to the MEL minimum equipment list to look. And uh, I do know we have redundant systems out there, and that is we have uh, two light bulbs in each of those uh, systems, the red and green lights, as well as the white lights. And I'm not sure about the strobe. I don't know if there's two out there or not. Do you know, Jeff? I'm not sure about that at all. I'm not sure about that. So, But we do need uh, our... Uh, uh, you know, we do utilize our, uh, you know, we do have to have the beacon. The beacon has to be available to us as well. I do know that is ME-able as well, as long as certain parameters are met. And then we have our nose lights and our wingtip lights, which are our bright white landing lights and, uh, you know, taxi lights. Um, we utilize those uh, exactly the same, and that is that uh, prior to takeoff, we, um, uh, we, on the 88, we have our wing inspection light and engine lights. Those are turned on, and then we have a, about a 45-degree light on each side of the, f the fuselage. Generally, the those 45 degrees are controlled by the captain, and the wing and nasal inspection lights are controlled by the first officer. Uh, and we turn those on just prior to entering, entering into the runway once we're uh, positioned to hold. And then once and we use the taxi light uh, on the nose wheel, uh, then once we are uh, cleared for takeoff, we turn on our wing lights, wingtip lights in our nose light to bright, and that is a consistent day and night uh, usage. Then climbing uh, out of, well, once we take off, we track the landing gear, the nose wheel, of course, is into the, the nose of the airplane, so we turn that light off. Climbing through um, 10,000 feet, uh, those wingtip lights when we accelerate, and, you know, it, it, 10,000 feet is a rough number, but it's really predicated upon the speed of the aircraft because as you accelerate through 250 knots towards our climb speed um, or decelerating towards 250 knots, that's when you want to extend those wing, wing lights. I usually like to call them light uh, speed brakes. So no pun intended, but light speed brakes. Actually, they go out and they help you slow down a little bit. Uh, but they will uh, remind you real quick if they're still extended and you're starting to accelerate through 250 up until the 300-knot range. You'll start feeling a little rumble in the airplane. So we, we will, at about 10,000 feet, retract those. And then up through uh, 18,000 feet, then that's when we turn the um, turn lights off, which are the 45-degree angled lights towards the front of the nose uh, on both sides. And then our wing inspection and nacelle lights will come off at about 18,000 and exactly the reverse coming down. So that's how we utilize our lights uh, on our airplane. And it's a pretty standard procedure, I think, in the company for uh, for operational of, of the yes, lights. Essentially, well. you want to have all the lights that you have available to help people see you. Uh, during the Correct. daytime operations. At nighttime, of course, the lights also serve that purpose, but they also help us to see things like the, the runway and taxiways and that kind of thing. Um, and uh, the only thing, as men uh, mentioned by Dana, that you may not keep on uh, all the way up to 18,000 feet are lights that are extended into the, uh, uh, the, the airstream and cause a lot of vibration and drag. And like our wing landing lights on the tips of the wings, as as Dana mentioned. Uh, so we retract those as we start accelerating above 250 knots. But the essential guidance for us by our regulators is that you should have all the available lights on. Once you're below 18,000 feet, you're getting into the low altitude structure. And that's because mainly for other people to see you and help prevent 
collisions. And then in this world of airline flying, we have, as Dana mentioned, the minimum equipment list, the MEL. And a lot of times, if something's out, we're doing our walk around and we notice one of the let's say the right uh, position light uh, or the, uh, the navigation, white navigation light. So we'll go back up into the airplane and we used to pull out the, uh, the, the, what do we call that? The uh, big green, uh, the big orange book, uh, orange book. Yeah. Um, and we, which we still have by the way. Uh, but we also have the uh, MEL and CDL on our uh, electronic flight bags, uh, EFBs. And we'll look it up and we'll say, okay, this is out. Can we, operate the airplane with this particular light out and then it will let us know <clears throat> let us know if we have any kind of uh, uh, way to operate the airplane an exception or a deferral uh, but uh, in general most of those lights like the position lights the uh, navigation lights at night uh, are required i think uh, in most cases but yeah and, and now I'm going to take the football and pass it to mm -hmm. Dr. Steph, but I will I, I will say that in the uh, FAA, which is the FAR's uh, requirements, there are certain requirements are that operate certain lights. Yes. So, and so yep. there you go, So Dr. we'll Steph. take it away there. So most importantly, uh, aircraft are required to have an anti-collision light system. So that is either a beacon or a strobe. Um, can be red or white, can be different in intensity from the other lights, and that should be used at all times. Although I believe there's a caveat that says that if the PIC believes that it is somehow detrimental to be using it. So if there's fog and it's, you know, the strobe lights are quite bright and um, potentially um, obscuring your vision in that that particular instance. So um, position lights. So navigation lights are required to be used from dusk till dawn. So uh, those are your wingtip red green lights. What else? So there's also, um, I think that's actually it for the FARs, um, but there's also, um, what do they call it? I think they call it a voluntary uh, pilot safety program where they do encourage the use of landing light uh, to be used for takeoff, at, either after receiving takeoff clearance or while you're um, at your position on the runway, and then also uh, below 10,000 feet within 10 miles of an airport or where there's an airport with a lot of um, potential hazards or obstructions. Yeah. yeah, and it's within an airport traffic yeah, area. It's, you know, anytime you're within the traffic area, always have all your you lights, be, you available be lights on. That's basically what it comes down yes. to. It's in the same same philosophy yeah. for us as well. And as yeah. we all know, the we talk about the green and red, and how I remember is red right. So that's the right wing to light. I'm just kidding. Right, that's correct. <laughs> no, it's not. No, it's opposite. No, you're, you're so, you're exactly opposite, Jeff. <laughs> I was hoping somebody would say, wait a minute, Jeff. No, that's not right. I had to think about it for a minute. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> no, no, the right no. one is the green and the left is the red. So that's how, you know, we right. see uh, when you're flying at night and you see an airplane uh, out there with its lights on, you can, you can, you know, can tell by the color of the, well, I guess it's the same with boats, right? They, they do the same kind of thing. Exactly the same with boats, and uh, you know, one of the things is is once you're up at altitude, it, it's quite prevalent when you see an aircraft out there. You can really see uh, the green and red lights, and of course the, the beacon, um, especially against that black sky. So it's it's really easy at night to pick out aircraft uh, versus during daytime. Uh, I find it much easier at night to find. And hopefully, them. I said speaking of saying things correctly. I hope I said position lights, sunset to sunrise. Not the other way around, because in my mind, then I was thinking that. But you know what I meant. Uh, Obviously, the in, yeah. in the dark. When it's dark. <laughs> Not, yeah. yeah. And in yeah, your the, point. The, uh, 
Sorry. No, go ahead. The navigation lights are the only real legal lights that you have to have on all the time uh, because the, you can turn the anti-coals or beacons off uh, and your landing lights off if they interfere with your visibility. Correct. So they're not actually legally required to be on all the time. But, but certainly, as I understand it, and, and sadly, I don't have access to MELs anymore because they've taken away my electronic Aww. flight bag. So I can't refer to my documents anymore. But um, certainly, uh, your navigation lights are. You are required, if you're flying for higher reward, to have uh, landing lights. And a an anti-collision light, but most aircraft have strobes and beacons, but you need to have one system mm -hmm. working to be legal. And then, as I say, you don't actually have to have them turned on if they're disturbing your ability to fly the airplane. Yeah, as Steph mentioned, and, and Dana, yeah. I'm sure you've seen it, or all of us probably have, where you're flying an approach to like a low visibility approach. And uh, you have the strobe lights on. All you can see is like blinding kind of, white all around you. Yeah. It's, like, it's just like very distracting yeah. and disorienting, actually. So you just turn those things off until you are out of the nasty weather. All right. That, and I love when the aircraft's taxi on the runway just in front of you and they turn their strobes on. Oy. Yeah. I'm wondering if that's something that just auto well i don't know if they can control that or not or maybe they have a rule of well, or perhaps they don't have a beacon well, see <laughs> yeah, well it with, with like with our aircraft the strobes don't come off and come on until the nose wheel extension right. i don't think that's true for most aircraft probably not it used to be well it is true for the airbuses but uh, after part of that safety um, requirement uh, we adopted the what I think is a worldwide procedure to put our strobes on when we enter the runway area, which means as soon as you taxi forward from the holding point, you've got to put your strobes on hmm. because uh, we used to rely on that weight on wheel switch to put our strobes on. But uh, no, we got a directive out from EASA saying that, uh, no, you need to put your strobes on when you're on the runway because there's little point having them if some bloke's going to land on top of you while you're waiting to line or while you're lining up. Uh, because they don't come on until you're actually airborne. Yeah, well, to, to hell with the uh, night vision that you did, that, that destroys. Try not when, looking at them. Well, I'll try and well, just close your eyes. When you're right behind the airplane. Close yeah. your eyes. <laughs> yeah, per go. perfectly. <laughs> it's exactly what we need to do. Close because, eyes. Uh, close what, my eyes. What, oh, wait, that's yeah. not good advice. Don't, don't, we can all, yeah. we can, don't, one, don't hold so close to him, and two, just think that he might be avoiding a major accident by putting them on. Well, in that, I agree with. Can't disagree oh, with that. Oh, good. Can we all hold hands and Kumbaya. Very Kumbaya. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I think we can do the next one here. Uh, five uh, from Brooke. Wow. Thank you, Captain Jeff, for sharing my feedback. What an honor. Even if my daughters, uh, even my daughters know that your show is a big deal because they said that our Labrador, Maddie, is famous now that she was mentioned on your podcast. Yes. You were right, Captain Jeff. That dude in the picture is my husband. Now, this is just to explain what she's talking about here. We, that she sent some earlier feedback in and sent a picture of uh, her husband and herself and their dog Maddie in the back of the uh, the back seat of the airplane. And uh, so I think I said something like, "Well, that dude must be your husband." So yes, I was right. The dude in the picture is my husband. Ha ha. My daughters and I thought that was so funny as you surmised who he might be, as did my husband when I sent him the link. 
and he is after you. You're dead. No. Dang. <laughs> How long ago did we get this list? <laughs> Better start yeah. running. <clears throat> hey, I just go to Dignitas and save him the trouble, Jeff. <laughs> I should. Yeah. Save everybody the trouble. Okay. Uh, love your sense of humor or humor as Captain Nick might spell it. Laugh out loud. Uh, so uh, you guys know what we're talking about. You were wondering what type of plane we were in that day. It was a Cessna 172. We don't currently own a plane. My husband is out of the country a lot for work. So it is more practical for us to rent a plane. Our neighbor has a Piper Cherokee that we rent from time to time. It's just a quick walk through the neighborhood to reach Berry Hill Airport. It's fun to live around people who have planes. The neighbor directly across from us owns a Beechcraft Baron. The dogs run to the door to watch him leave his hangar when they hear it start up. I'm, I run, uh, I'm right behind them to watch also. Another guy a few houses down is a mechanic for Acme Airlines, and he owns an EAA biplane. It always... It's always a treat to watch him go past our house in his shiny red and gold plane with matching helmet as he makes his way to the runway. Before my husband's last deployment to Iraq two years ago, he rented a Cessna and we flew to the Cobb County Airport. Once we were there, he took turns taking up all the kids and wives of several pilots in his unit that would also be deploying for a year. It was such a fun day. None of the kids or spouses had been up in a light aircraft before. It was awesome to see and experience the excitement that they all had. Such great memories. Oh, you and Captain Nick mentioned the earmuffs that Maddie, our Labrador, was wearing in the picture. They are called mutt muffs. Laugh out loud. They are great for reducing noise for your dog, whether you're flying in a Cessna or taking your dog along to see fireworks. I took Maddie to see the Wings Over North Georgia Air Show in Rome, Georgia, a few years ago. My husband was in the Georgia National Guard at the time as a Black Hawk pilot. He and a couple of others helped provide medevac support for the show that weekend. The Mutt Muffs came in handy when it was time for the F-22 Raptor d demonstration. Here's the website if anyone's interested. And uh, she put the link to safeandsoundpets.com. Their website has a variety of products from toys to safety gear. I bet Dr. Steph and Captain Nick could find some cool things for their dogs. Taco and Truman might like a stuffed toy airplane to fly with, uh, to play with, <laughs> not fly. Or to tear they apart, also, yes. Yeah, to tear, to rip <laughs> yeah, apart. To rip, yeah. rip apart. <laughs> they yeah. also have a photo gallery of dogs flying with their owners. I know the APG community would enjoy seeing these. One last thing I wanted to share. I feel a special connection to Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport. My dad actually grew up as a kid in a house that used to sit on property that is now directly under one of the runways. Oh, uh, my grandmother would take me uh, would take me when I was a kid to watch planes take off from the runway where her house once stood. I'm so happy that I got to experience that with my grandmother. Those special times together are still vivid in my memory. I've taken my daughter several times to Hartsfield to watch the planes take off and land. It's still just as amazing to see now at the age of 41 as it was when I was five years old. So I guess it was only natural for me to come across your podcast I love it as much as I do. Thanks again to all of you, and especially thanks for giving our sweet 13-year-old Labrador her 15 minutes of fame on your show. P.S. I've included a picture of my dad pointing on a black and white photo the location of his childhood home. This picture of the airport was taken before they added all the additional runways. That is so cool. So we'll put this picture in the show notes doesn't look anything just... like what the airport looks like today. No, not yeah. even close. Yeah. 
Although you'll notice, uh, Dana, that that diagonal runway there going from northwest yep. to northeast is still there, actually, or most part of it, anyway. Yeah, as a taxiway. Juliet. Yeah, it sure yeah. is. Interesting. Well, thanks a lot, Brooke, for uh, giving us, filling in the, the details there for the uh, Mutt Muffs and uh, all the information about your wonderful family and your wonderful husband, who I really, really like and hope that he doesn't come after me. Berry Hill actually is the first airport I took my first flight in Atlanta in. A Acme mechanic actually rented airplanes out of there. It was a Cherokee. Um, and I went for my first checkout with him. Huh. Is, there. That, is that like a flying and then community later on, at that Berry Hill Airport? Or? Yeah, it's a flying community. And a, a very good friend of mine that I used to work with, Chuck Tabak, he used to live there. I don't know if this person... Um, Brooke would know him or not. It depends on how long she was there, but he uh, was there for a very long time. And um, it's also the airport that I almost uh, almost crashed. Oh no, my first <laughs> yeah, because there's power lines right at the end of the runway going up. You're taking off. I forget the runway number. I know it's heading northwest, so it might be uh, right runway uh, three two. I don't remember. Maybe it's two eight. And I know it can't be. It might be three two three one somewhere around there. Uh, and you take off, and even in my Piper Warrior uh, with a hundred and sixty horsepower, uh, with just two of us in in the airplane, not full full fuel. We were to tab, so I think that's seventeen gallons in the Piper Warrior um, in each side, uh, and we barely. I mean, when I say barely, cleared the power lines. I mean, maybe ten feet, maybe. Uh, it was it was quite an eye-opening experience, and that was you know early on in my early on in my flying days. But good old Berry Hill, you can actually see it uh, when we're in Downwind. Uh, you, you descend right over the top of it uh, just before you turn left base for runway uh, two seven left or two eight. Oh. I'll have to look for it. You'll have to look for it. It's hard to find, yeah. but you, if you know where to look, it's there. Okay. Very good. Okay. Um, <clears throat> some feedback from uh, some audio feedback from Nate. Hey there, APG crew. Nate from Brooklyn with a super quick audio feedback. Just replying to the Airbus hypoxia automation thing from the last episode. The idea being that we weren't sure if it was pilot initiated or aircraft initiated, but the idea was that an aircraft would initiate an emergency descent if it detected that the pressurization was low and nobody had responded to it. So I think the crux of this is the same thing that afflicted the MCAS in the 737. And this might be naive of me, but it occurs to me that the question the engineers would want to be asking is, what happens if this goes off at the wrong time due to a faulty reading on something? And just take it from there. <laughs> Game out the worst case scenario because it seems like nobody really did that with the MCAS. Some things that come to mind in terms of if this happened with the Airbus would be the pilots notice it's descending. If they don't know what's causing it, they might take corrective action and overcorrect. They might end up in a stall situation. You might have something like the Amazon 767 issue. So you kind of have to game out like, okay, well, what are the odds of a Helios disaster versus what are the odds of 
some sort of faulty reading, putting the pilots in a confusing situation. Clearly, the MCAS seems to have, and it's hard to know the, it's hard to know how many flights it saved, but it seems like the MCAS, in the case of the MCAS with the 7-3, the cure was worse than the disease. Interested in your opinions, uh, clear skies and tailwinds, guys. Haven't sent one for a while, but been enjoying the show on the sly. Thanks. Okay, do we want to discuss this first before we get on to Pip's uh, audio feedback of the same subject? Well, I'll just make one quick comment, and mm-hmm. that uh, MCAS is, uh, oh, was when, uh, before it was, uh, the aircraft was grounded, was activated by a single source sensor. Mm-hmm. In other words, it only required one angle of attack sensor to indicate a, uh, a false reading and, uh, or, in fact, a real reading, and NCAS would be activated. Um, with my knowledge of the Airbus systems, although I'm not intimately aware of exactly how many um, inputs an automatic uh, depressurization uh, profile would be flown, uh, my knowledge of Airbus would indicate that it would require multiple and confirmatory, in other words, indications that would confirm the uh, failure from multiple sources uh, before it would even uh, be considered to uh, self-initiate. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think we're talking chalk and cheese here. Yeah. Apples and oranges, chalk and cheese. Yeah. Um, what does Pip think about it, I wonder? Hi, folks. It's Pip here. I just wanted to do offer some thoughts on something you were discussing on episode 377, so two or three episodes ago now. And that was the new Airbus A350 and a system it has whereby it automatically initiates a descent in the case of a a decompression, depressurization, and there's no input from the pilot. So it it assumes uh, incapacitation by the crew and automatically initiates a descent to a lower altitude. Uh, which to my mind is a, a perfectly good, sensible, safe system to have, and I wouldn't mind having it on my aeroplane. Uh, now, I have to disagree um, with some of you. I, I don't think this has anything to do at all with single pilot operations or you know pushing towards pilotless aircraft. I think this is a purely a, a, a safety measure and not a bad one to have. Now, the, the point that I wanted to make, and I don't think you really touched on, was the fact that you know, you guys, Dana, Jeff, um, probably Nick as well, back when he was flying, you guys were chugging around maybe in the mid-300s, you know, 30,000 feet, 35,000 feet. I don't know, maybe you go a bit higher. But for the aircraft that I'm more familiar with, the genre of aircraft that I fly, some of which already have this system, and I've had it for quite a few years, we are regularly flying much, much higher. For me, it's not uncommon to be up in the mid-40s, 45,000 feet, uh, and some jets like the, the later Gulf Streams, the Global 6000s and, and later models, they are capable of and regularly go uh, much higher up into the high 40s, even the 50,000s, particularly when they're you know going on their long-range cruises. It wouldn't be uncommon at all to be up at 50,000 feet or higher. Uh, so for you guys, if you're in the mid-30s, say, and you do have a rapid decompression your time of useful consciousness is probably pretty reasonable, something in the order of 30 seconds, maybe even a minute, um, you know, for someone in their prime. So that gives you plenty of time to recognize what's going on, um, 
overcome the startle factor. Put down your, your sandwich, put down your glass of wine, put down your beer, whatever you've got. Take out your mask and put it on. So plenty of time to control the aircraft, initiate a descent, put out a melee, all the rest of it. However, contrast that with an aircraft flying up at the mid-40s or higher into the 50,000s. Time of useful consciousness up there is drastically reduced. Some of the tables that I've got suggest that time of useful consciousness following a rapid decompression at 50,000 feet is in the order of 4 to 5 seconds. So really not much time at all. And I would suggest that actually that's with four or five seconds, that's not enough time to recognize what's going on, get out a mask, properly fit it, and, and start sucking on that oxygen. Um, so I would think that the chances of both crew members becoming incapacitated at those sorts of altitudes in a rapid decompression are very high. Now, granted, that's a very rare situation to come across. I've not heard of anything at those sorts of altitudes, but as Nick had said in his plane tale, it, it has happened. Now, I, I don't know what sort of altitudes the A350 is going to be cruising at. I don't think it's going to be up as high as 50,000 feet, but um, probably up into the 40s, I would think. Uh, now, what I don't know, and maybe Steph can answer this, is is there a relationship between the, the difference in cabin altitude and the aircraft altitude as to the time of useful consciousness so if you have a cabin altitude let's say of eight to nine thousand feet and you're at forty thousand feet is the time of useful consciousness less or, or more versus if you were at a lower cabin altitude let's say of three or four thousand feet because i suppose with the a350 the cabin altitude uh, versus something like the mad dog is going to be much lower so i don't know if that affects it but even so i can't imagine it would be much of a difference Anyway, just wanted to uh, throw that into the ring. Uh, let me know what you think. Take care, all. Bye. Thanks, Pip, who is the host of the wonderful Plane Safety Podcast. Please check it out if you already have not, and subscribe. Uh, really, some uh, good points there regarding the uh, the system that they are uh, making available for the A350. Um, I just did a quick search to see if I could find the service ceiling. On the Airbus A350, I believe it's probably in the low 40s, but I, I, I didn't find a definitive answer on that. But um, yeah, good point about the corporate jets that are up there in the mid 40s or even sometimes higher. Yeah, still though, if you're at 40,000 feet, that's about seven to 10 seconds of uh, useful consciousness. So it's still so not what, very much. So what about his um, his his point about the cabin? Yeah, if you're already that. at altitude and then suddenly you have a rapid decompression and you're, um, yeah. you know, so you're at forty five thousand feet. I don't think it makes any big difference. I, I don't know that for certain, but um, you know, say it's a little bit different where you're at three thousand feet cabin altitude and then you're, you know, at flight level three five zero where you might have thirty seconds of useful consciousness. Will you get an extra? few seconds out of that? I, I don't think so. Or would you get lesser time out of it because you were already at a little bit of um, elevation? Probably not. Well, the rapid D, I mean, if it's a ra truly a rapid D, wouldn't really just about take your wind out of you anyways? It does uh, yeah, have that, that, expect, that aside, uh, you know, the, but say you just lost cabin uh, pressure and then you're basically at the um, ambient uh, altitude. Uh, it's not going to be a lot of time anyway. So even at a normal, so say you were just normally ascending and not pressurizing 
uh, the aircraft for whatever reason. If you, uh, <laughs> and this is a little strange because uh, obviously it's going to take you some time to get there. This kind of just assumes that, it, I, I don't know what they mean by normal ascent, but say you're at flight level, uh, say you're at 30,000 feet, that's a, a additional 30 seconds, so like one to two minutes potentially of useful consciousness. So you're talking about, you know, somewhere in that ballpark. But at 40,000 feet, no matter what, it's at most 20 seconds either way. Uh, It depends depends how quickly the air escapes through whatever hole has appeared in the aircraft. And if you're in a small aircraft, that could be pretty fast Mm -hmm. because you don't have a great volume of air. But in a bigger aircraft, you might have a little more time. But it depends entirely on the situation. If your pressurization has failed, you can hold on to your current pressurization for quite a while because it's only going to leak slowly. But if you've uh, just had a bomb go off and had a big hole put in the aircraft out, it's going to happen quickly. It's an interesting one. We fly the 340 uh, regularly up to 41,000. We didn't have any special regulations uh, about that. But, uh, yep, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's relatively high, but not as high as uh, Pip's machine or... uh, other exec jets fly um it's interesting his thoughts on uh you know why they have it i i personally think uh, yeah even though it's a remote possibility there are plenty of uh protections built into the aircraft that i used to fly uh, that probably would never have occurred um uh, you know that uh, such as uh, let me think a um a compressor disc uh, coming loose and ripping out and uh, the guts of an engine. Uh, there were specific uh, software fixes for various systems that w- would help you contain problems of an uncontained engine failure, that sort of thing, when it took out two engines. Um, so, you know, there there are lots of, all sorts of um, contingency uh, systems built in to some aircraft that will work but the chances of them actually ever being used in reality were incredibly low but just in case they were there and i think that's the case with an automatic decompression system yeah just trying Uh, to think proactively i guess and yeah prevent a catastrophe yeah all right well, very good. Thank you, uh, Nate and Pip, for adding to our conversation regarding that. A lot of good points made there. And, uh, well, you know what? It's time for the best part of the show, which everybody knows means this week's installment of Plane Tales. The old pilot's Plane Tales. Jeff Lee, a master photographer. Now, this is an interesting um question because i'm a bit of a pilot who thinks he's a photographer the chap i'm chatting to right now is a photographer who thinks he's a pilot no, i'm only joking <laughs> <laughs> jeff lee is a truly professional aviation photographer and i'm delighted to have the chance to uh, chat to him today because um, the sort of things he did uh, well does still are the things that i dreamt of and the images he's produced are absolute classics and I hope he'll give us a chance to see just one or two of them perhaps to put on the website. But I know Jeff Lee because 
Jeff uh, used to come to regularly uh, to RF Valley when I was there as an instructor and uh, sit in the back seats of Hawks while we did a lot of air-to-air -air photography. Now, I sadly never got a chance to fly with him, but I think I was probably the subject of a few of his pictures. So that's how I know Jeff. And I know a lot of you guys out there, guys and girls out there, are keen aviation photographers, and I'm hoping that he will give us a few tips and tricks to make sure our images are as good, or at least try to be as good as his. Jeff, lovely to uh, chat to you again after all these years. I know, it's, it's fantastic. When you said, well, firstly, come and meet you again, because we live so close together without knowing it, but it was an absolute delight to come and see you today and um, see you and your wife. It's been absolutely brilliant so far. And again, it's my pleasure to um, you know, pass on some of my tips uh, to your listeners. I hope we can get some of them out of you. Now, um, we first met at RAF Valley, but I want to go back a bit further. How did you first get into photography as a trade? Um, I actually, it was my second choice, not my first choice. Um, so I wanted to be, believe it or not, because I lived uh, uh, in Sambrion-Thames, which is near Heathrow Airport, uh, I thought leaving school I'd become an engineer and having Heathrow around the corner I thought I would probably end up uh, trying to get an apprenticeship with BEA or BOAC at the time. Uh, I did go for interviews, unfortunately I failed um, and I then applied. I discovered that Hawker Siddeley Aviation were um, only about five miles away in Kingston-upon-Thames. Ham. So um, I uh, applied, went for an interview and I got the job. Um, but I actually, uh, on my interview form, uh, on my application form, I actually um, said I would like to either be a graphic designer because I enjoy drawing and drawing plans and bits and pieces. And I also tick photography. I always enjoyed photography. Wasn't necessarily very good at it, but I enjoyed the art of taking pictures. And I, I couldn't believe it, but they offered me in a, a four-year apprenticeship as a, a trainee photographer. And that's how it all started in 1975. They trained you to become a photographer? A professional industrial photographer. Brilliant. But um, what kind of pictures were you taking back in those days? Right. Uh, where I worked, it's uh, essentially where the, um, the Hawker Siddeley uh, Hawk and the Hunters and the Harriers were built. That's where all the initial uh, aeroplanes uh, were assembled before going to Dunsfold in Surrey to then uh, have their test flights and then go to the customers. So essentially it was anything to do with the people or the parts to do with the aeroplane. And, and I mean any single part of the aeroplane. I would say the average stuff, there was a lot of people stuff. Uh, a lot of our marketing people used to go abroad, so a lot of passport-type pictures, visa pictures. But the main thing was anything to do with the aeroplane uh, its manufacture. So we'd spend a lot of time, uh, the designers and, and some of the guys on the shop floor would say, uh, we've got a problem with this pipe run or electricity cable or hydraulics. Uh, can we have some pictures? Because even though we've got technical drawings, they don't show us actually what the actual build is like. So we used to spend hours um, photographing um, aircraft parts or, or made up components of the aeroplane. You get a lot of darkroom experience in those days. Yes. I'm assuming it was all wet film. It was all wet film. And when I started, we used, um, I was using Hasselblad cameras. So it was all uh, um, two and a quarter square. Uh, so when you're trying to get into undercarriage bays on small aeroplanes and then you've got a huge camera plus a flash gun, 
actually. And then you've got to get yourself in. Uh, it, it was always, it was a fun and you'd always end up bruised and scratches, but that was always part and parcel. As for the darkroom stuff, again, the part of the apprenticeship, you actually learn, we learned not just the wet process, which I'll cover just in a minute. We used to actually go into various other departments for the for the for six months. So you get total grounding of how an aircraft uh, manufacturer occurs. Then um, as part of that, when I first started going into the photographic department, I would black and white print. I'd learn color printing. Even though I did it at college, it's different when you do it, do ones off to then doing it all day, every day for maybe a week. Um, and then doing uh, photography, processing of black and white films, processing color films, slide films, neg films. And then we also used to do a lot of the old aeroplanes, a lot of the old dials in the cockpit used to have the plastic dials. But within that dial, there was actually a metal, uh, some wording so we used to actually, uh, through photographic processes, we actually used to make the metal that used to go into the bits of plastic. Also, our radar screens at Dunsfold at the time, your approaches and, and your glide pass, so the air traffic com uh, controllers used to see you coming down. That We used to do those on glass plates, and they had to, had to be exact because obviously if, if, you, if it was out by a certain percentage... Obviously, that wasn't um, at the right heights. When We're you... talking about photographic etching here, are we? Of yes, some kind? Etching, etching the yeah, glass. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And again, our files at Kings Pond Thames went back to the um, early 1914. So we had the original whole plates of all the Sopwith aeroplanes. Oh, good Lord. What a fantastic historic place to be in. It yeah. must have been fabulous. Yeah, it was. It was, uh, it was sad when it all uh, disappeared. The stuff is all accessible. It's just, it's a shame it's not all in one place. Well, you're right, but at least it's been preserved and yes. not put in a skip somewhere. Exactly. Now, you landed a great job, uh, but it presumably progressed because you ended up, when we met, uh, working for British Aerospace. So I'm guessing your company was swallowed by the big monster? It was. Um, essentially, I started at the bottom. Uh, I did a four-year apprenticeship, a five-year college course. And then I got my, my break, really, was 1980. Uh, I was actually on a on a Hawk uh, American tour. Um, the company were trying to sell the Hawk into America for their new training aeroplane. And I met a, an RF exchange officer called Chris Taylor. And we got on like a house on fire. And he said, I'm going to be taking over at uh, Valley on uh, one uh, squadron. And I would love you to come and fly with me. And that's how it all started. And that's when we met. <laughs> I had no idea you met Chris in America. Yeah, he was flying T-38s at Randolph Air Force Base. Well, I never. What a coincidence. Yeah. Now, of course, that's where our story starts yeah. because I was posted to uh, number one squadron at uh, 4FTS Valley and uh, ended up working for Chris yeah. as one of his flight instructors. Yeah. And that's how we met because yeah. you started coming along and leaping into the back seats of various aircraft yeah. to do all sorts of things. Yeah. Now, let me go back a bit. What was your very first airborne photo shoot and um, how did it go? Right. Interesting. Believe it or not, it was not in a military aeroplane. Uh, again, uh, as I slowly worked my way through the company and my, my aim, having seen my, my colleagues in front of me and, and apprentices that had finished their apprenticeship that I was working for, uh, some of them didn't get the opportunity to fly in military aeroplanes. For me, I, I can't remember the exact date, but it was... Probably 1978-ish, uh, when we used to have a new Hawk aeroplane, a new uh, 
uh, airplane came out the hangar in a different paint scheme or used to have different uh, weapons on, the company required air-to-air photographs. So what we used to do, we would use one of our communications airplane, which was one, a uh, de Havilland Dove, a twin-engined uh, airplane. Yeah, I remember the Dove, yes. And uh, also, we after that, uh, we had a, a Seminole, Piper Seminole as a, again, communications aeroplane, but they could all do about 140, 140 knots, uh, which uh, when you get a Hawk, you put the uh, flaps down, you can comfortably fly at a 140, 120, which was more than enough to do the air-to-air photography from. Okay, it wasn't very, you know, it's not like the uh, the aeroplane could do lots of manoeuvring, but it was good enough for what we, the purpose of the exercise. So my first one was in a Dove aeroplane, and I remember we were actually we were actually right at the back of the aeroplane where the loo was, and they, they took all the door the doors off just to give us more room. But the problem was that the main door out or in and out of the aeroplane was just some flimsy little lever, and a couple of times my pilot that we were photographing actually had to radio in to say, "Could you just turn the handle? Because if you if you don't, you'll you'll end up falling out." <laughs> I remember that so vividly because it happened so many times. Oh, Lord. Yeah. <laughs> so health and safety was paramount in your mind at that point. I <laughs> yes, can, it was. I can tell. Brilliant. So that, that, was my, that was my learning, early learning on air-to-air photography and learning. I suppose the key to it is communication and also learning pilot terms because at that stage I was so naive. I didn't really know anything about the art of flying and the terminologies talking to pilots and I suppose that that early first couple of flights where you have to brief pilots but if you don't really know what airplanes do can and can't do as I said that 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 was a very steep learning but my 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 real break came in 1980 I had just come out of my my apprenticeship and Chivna was going to reopen a second time and uh, there was going to be a new Hawk squadron down there and one of my first away jobs uh, for the company as a fully qualified junior photographer was to go down to Chivener and photograph the opening ceremony with the hawks and the helicopters and, and meet everybody, but photograph it for the company as they were our aeroplanes that were going to be there for the first time. And I met uh, the boss of the squadron, a super, super chap. He actually said to me, we would like some air-to-air pictures of our hawks would you be prepared to come? And I said, I would love to. The problem that I've got at the moment, I'm in sort of a catch-22. My company would like to put me on a medical um, survival training course and do my yearly medical, but they don't know whether or not I'm going to be suitable, whether I'm going to be throwing up, whether I never want to be in an aeroplane again. So I explained this to the boss and he said, we'll fly you and providing you're, you know, you do your job, uh, I'll write to your boss. And, um, and and that's really how my, my, my career started in 1980 all through to this one guy who, who had faith in me. Isn't that marvellous? Yeah. And presumably from the, the back of that, you got yourself a proper aviation medical yeah. and uh, one of the very few photographers who had that kind of uh, access to military aircraft. You, there was no stopping you after that. It was one trying to get my name known, trying to get my work known. And Chivna was a good platform because not only am I meeting instructors who are then probably going to go on back onto the front line, I'm also meeting students going through. So hopefully when they get to their, their squadron, you know, I'll, I'll meet them again or five years, 10 years later. And that's what's happened. The people I met back in the early 80s and 90s, both Valley, Chivna and Broadie, 
they're now chiefs of the air force and i still are friends with them to this day or you know some are group captains some are air commodores and that's what's so nice is the fact i'm still friends with these people today brilliant and they open doors hopefully they, they have done yes so we've heard about your first airborne uh, shoot Perhaps you could uh, explain to us some of the challenges you face when trying to do air-to-air photography. Most of my challenges are when I, I, I either get a phone call or an email, Jeff, we'd like you to come to our airbase, uh, we want you to photograph X, Y or Z. It's that initial phone call to find out exactly what, what they want photographing, why, is there anything specific? And then really for me, I then um, put together a, a photographic brief or the information they've provided. And in the old days, it used to be on paper and then uh, overhead projectors. And now, of course, we're into modern day PowerPoints. So that has all changed in, in, in terms. But actually, my planning process is exactly the same. And I scrupulously go through what is possible. And again, now having done it for 40 years, I know what aeroplanes can do, can't do. I know what pilots can do and can't do. And I also know when I'm given a set of pilots, I know they're all highly competent professional people that uh, obviously trust their other colleagues when we're doing uh, formation flying. But it's more the manoeuvring. And, and obviously they've got to have faith in what I want. But safety is paramount. That is the key to to, to good planning is safety but knowing when you're in the vertical you know where one peels away from the other what height you rejoin that one's on odds one's on evens so it's not just the photography i have to think about i also have to think a little bit about about the safety of it planning is the key and you only get that with years and years and years of experience you say you've been in the industry 40 years that's more or less as long as i've been a professional pilot so we've kind of our careers have paralleled it's it's very yes. interesting and of course some of the maneuvers you're asking your pilots to perform aren't the average day-to-day maneuver they may be just an absolute one-off that they've never attempted before and they're going to have to exercise their skills to, yes. in order to pull off what you're asking for yeah what generally um and and the type of airplane to a degree is academic other than the speeds and maybe the turning ability most air-to-air sorties we do within uh, the, uh, that I've done within the Royal Air Force. And again, you know, I'm very lucky. I've flown with the Red Arrows and other aerobatic display teams. They all say at the end of an hour, you know, hour, hour 20 sortie, they are they're absolutely shattered because it's, it's concentration. And we, we're doing, we're not necessarily flying closer than you normally do when you do formation flying. But it's some of the manoeuvring that goes with it and the thought processes and it's thinking when when either we're turning over an aeroplane or the other aeroplane's coming towards us, you know, we've always got to think, you know, avoid collisions. And again, I wouldn't put us into that position in the first place, but you still have to go through this process. And even when we do the briefing, you know, and the pilots um, explain the fuels, what aeroplanes and whatever, safety comes into that before we even get into the photography side of things. So it's, you know, it is key. Absolutely. The physical aspects, though, of uh, managing a camera, uh, particularly in a, a fighter where the cockpits are small, or you're pulling G, how much of a problem is that? Uh, I would say in my early days, because, uh, again, my naivety, uh, pulling G and then the aeroplane at 45 degrees or 90 degrees, uh, it was just, you know, it's like, how the hell am I going to actually get some of this photography? And then I learned that actually... 
The chase aeroplane is the key. There's no point. My early days, people used to fly me and they used to buzz over the other aeroplane, pulling stacks of G. Then I realized fairly early on that actually as a camera platform, we need to be, yes, we might need to maneuver, but we need to do things on a steady basis. In other words, we get the other aeroplane to do the hard work. So keeping the G down is, is, uh, is essential. And in the early days using Hasselblads, uh, so that camera was extremely heavy and there was uh, the map, we had magazines loaded with the film in and each magazine that we used to have only took 24 pictures and it was a roll film, not cassettes. I used to take up six magazine backs with me. So you, that in itself is a lot of space. So what um, uh, the navigators used, they had a nav bag, which was like two uh, air crew pockets that had been sewed, sewed together uh, with Velcro. So it meant that when my, when my magazines were in there, uh, they would stay safe in there. Biggest problem pulling G, the camera would actually pack up at 4G. It was the mirror. We're going to leave it there for the moment, and I may be being a bit self-indulgent, but as a keen photographer, I have to say I found this and the rest of the interview absolutely fascinating. Thanks very much to Jeff Lee for his time and his insights into this amazing subject. There will be more to come, and if you want to see what Jeff is up to and take a look at some of his images, please visit his website at plainfocus.com. Truly fascinating stuff, especially that little teaser that you put there at the end, Nick. The, uh, <laughs> Thank the, you. The, the, the mirror. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, I was just trying to imagine what it was like with a Hasselblad, which is uh, a big uh, medium format camera. Um, you know, it's a large piece of kit, uh, mm -hmm. and it, it isn't the easiest camera to use if you're a wedding photographer. Yet he is in full Air Force kit in a very unfamiliar environment, trying to manhandle this camera with wet film, and all the problems that goes along with it, and yet some of the images he produced uh, were just fantastic. So uh, I have a, a lot of admiration uh, for Jeff, and it was lovely to catch up with him again after all these years. Yeah, very neat. Very cool. Can't wait to hear the next part of the interview with Jeff Lee. Yeah, coming next week. Okay. Excellent. Well, shall we move on? Try to get some more feedback knocked out? Sure. Please do. All right. Uh, eight. Tony says, I guess this one's for Captain Nick, retired. But first, congratulations on your retirement. I'm sorry that you didn't get to fly your retirement flight and have the water cannon salute. I guess we have, maybe we can simulate that somehow at Oshkosh. Yeah, possibly not. <laughs> <laughs> I love that idea. We are okay. definitely doing that. I will buy the super soakers now. Right. Uh, damn. <laughs> Jeff, we need to buy something, some shields. I don't know. What can we do? Why? I'm going to be uh, with one of the Yeah, Jeff's going to be with me. Like, you're on your own with this, oh, this thank one. you. Thank you very much. Sure. 1v4. That's not fair. Anyway, he continues. Uh, I have often wondered if UK and other airlines have air marshals on board. Do they? When U.S. airlines arrive in the U.K., what do the air marshals do with their weapons? Guns are not allowed in the U.K. 
I could not bring my Ruger 9mm with me when I returned after living in the U.S. for eight years. Do the air marshals have to surrender them to U.K. authorities' uh, airside before they go to the hotel for rest and collect them before they return before the return flight to the U.S.? Are they secured on the aircraft uh, where they are, technically not in the U.K.? As an aside, Donald Trump is currently in the U.K. Is his entourage allowed to be armed on U.K. soil? Is the British monarch prime minister allowed to have armed British security details when they visit the U.S.? As ex-military, I thought you may have an insight on this. Keep doing what you're doing, and thanks for your work. Uh, B.S. No, not that B.S. T-W-N-C-A-V-O-K. So, uh, Blue Skies, Tailwinds, and Cav OK. Are you missing the job yet? Best regards to you all. Tony Kinsley. And I think I might know uh, the answer to this. I think they're using those um, rubber band guns. Um, so they're, they're okay, I think. Yeah. Do, do you ever have spud guns when you Potato were a kid? Yeah, yeah. Sure. Potato, uh-huh. Yeah, when that, I was a I kid. Think that's what they like give them. Four years ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kid at heart. <laughs> Yeah. Those things right. can be dangerous. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, we're highly trained professionals. Oh, yeah. I definitely would not suggest using one at home. Kids. Yeah. I don't know, but they worked damn well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, well, I, I, I wish I could answer this one, Jeff, mm-hmm. but uh, sadly, um, we get drawn a little bit into this world, but not nearly as closely as uh, you would like, Tony, to be able to give you an informed answer. Uh, to find out what uh, air marshals do with their weapons uh, and I was expecting her that's what she said then um, <laughs> no, yeah you're going to have to ask an air marshal because the limit of our exposure to their presence on an aircraft is the fact that we're usually informed they're on board sometimes we meet them uh, but uh, what where they stick their weapons um, sorry, that's uh, n- not essential knowledge for us. And it sort of comes under the caveat of um, need to know. Uh, so that was a, it sort of originated the military and it has continued on uh, into a lot of aspects of uh, the uh, safety and security personnel. So if you don't need to know something, you're not going to be told. I don't need to know uh, whether um, an air marshal is going to carry his weapon in the United Kingdom uh, and uh, whether um, the monarch uh, uh, security services are allowed to carry weapons in the United States. So no one's going to tell me. Um, and I'm from that point of view, I might as well be just a British citizen going, yeah, I, I don't know. I am quite honestly, uh, it's up to the security services and the least we know probably the better because we don't want to inform um, those that might do us harm mm-hmm. or do our, um, you know, uh, politicians, etc. harm. So uh, other than the fact that we are, as a captain, we usually inform they're on board. That is the limit of my knowledge, I'm afraid. So if you, you've at least answered his first question, which is, I've often wondered if UK and other airlines have air marshals on board. So I, I guess based on what you just said, yes, yeah. they do. Yes, okay. we do. Yes, there's the, the, yes, we do. There is a system of uh, mm-hmm. the equivalent of air marshals uh, for the United Kingdom, and they do come on board the, our aircraft. Uh, so, yes, it exists. Uh, and, um, yeah, but that's, that's it. And what's more, I think you'd probably understand 
even if I knew... That we couldn't uh, say. <laughs> yeah, we wouldn't say, because it rather defeats the object if you pass intelligence to potential enemies. Um, I mean, uh, it, yeah, exactly. What more can I say? Well, Tony probably thinks that maybe we only have 12 listeners and it wouldn't be a really a security breach, but we have more than <laughs> yeah. that. We have at least two dozen. Yeah, so that's so. definitely yeah, a, exactly a big right. leak. <laughs> yeah, and, and one of those is very dodgy. <laughs> one, just one? It's, we'll leave it to you to figure out which one that is. Yeah. yeah, we haven't worked it out yet. So I'm sorry I can't help more, but I do thank you very much indeed for your um, congratulations on my retirement. And yes, it was a shame not to get a retirement flight, um, but it's not going to break my heart. Well, I mean, you did get one. It's just that you didn't know it was your retirement flight. <laughs> yeah, actually, it was a great flight because yeah. we all met in Miami and we had a lovely uh, couple of days together, wasn't it? It was absolutely yeah. brilliant. We didn't we realize didn't it was a retirement was party. <laughs> yeah, we just didn't know it was going to be my last flight. Huh. Yes, but I'm glad that we were there to share that with you. Okay. Super. Um, moving on, we have a little bit of audio feedback from Tom. Greetings, APG crew. This is Tom from Columbia, Missouri. I just listened to episode 277, and as always, it was a fine listening experience, and I definitely continue to appreciate what you guys do. I want to try to help you guys a little bit stay above 50%, and I want to comment on the story you guys talked about uh, with the fuel contamination being contaminated with diesel exhaust fluid, uh, also known as DEF. Um, DEF is not a fuel additive, and um, the reason I know this is uh, I actually worked for a very large truck stop chain for many years and ran truck stops for them out on up and down the East Coast. Did that for quite a while, and I also operated a truck for a while that required DEF, and um, I have no idea why DEF would even be close to uh, jet fuel. The only thing I can imagine is it was being brought out to the airport, maybe to be used in the, the trucks that the airport operates in and around the airport. I can't imagine that it's used anywhere uh, in or around the jet engine. But uh, anyway, I just thought I'd clarify what DEF is. Uh, diesel exhaust fluid is not a fuel additive. It is actually kept in a separate tank and it is used for cleaning the exhaust on diesel engines. Um, as the exhaust comes out of the diesel engine and goes through the exhaust system, in line in the exhaust system is uh, sort of a small filter slash incinerator. And as the exhaust goes into that filter incinerator area, this uh, diesel exhaust fluid actually lights it up and burns off the pollution. And so the exhaust comes out much cleaner. So uh, today, in, and speaking of you know big trucks, like 18-wheeler type trucks, you know, you've got the exhaust stacks that come out from the top of the truck. You will just really not see those trucks blowing black smoke anymore like we used to see on a fairly regular basis. And that's because of DEF. DEF takes care of that. Now, if you do see that, um, one, either one, there's something wrong with the engine, or two, um, the... Um, the diesel exhaust fluid system has been removed, which... 
there are people that do that. That is an illegal thing to do, but uh, there are people that do that. So, uh, but rarely will you ever see that anymore. So, um, also, uh, deaf is used in uh, most, if not all, uh, diesel-engined cars. Now, we don't have a lot of cars in the, in the U.S. that are powered by diesel engines, but there are a few. The one I'll make an example of is the Volkswagen Passat. Now, I do know that the Passat uh, diesel version has a DEF tank. Now, that tank, most of the Volkswagen owners probably don't even know they have a DEF tank. And the reason for that is, is the tank is large enough to hold enough fluid that it only has to be serviced when, when the car comes into the shop for its 15,000 mile service. So when that happens, uh, the mechanic will just fill that up and the, the owner will probably not even know about it. Now, if it ever does get low, if they don't bring it in for the service, they'll get a light on their dash that will tell them that their def tank is, is uh, that it needs to be serviced. Now, for larger trucks, there's actually a gauge, just like a fuel gauge, that tells you where your, uh, where your DEF tank is. Um, so the truck that I operated for a while that had DEF, we had a tank that I believe was about 10 gallons, and that was comparable to the 50-gallon uh, fuel tank that we had. So we would fill that DEF tank up about every other uh, fill-up, and when we would do that, the tank would be about half full, maybe a little under half. So it doesn't use a whole lot of DEF. And if I remember correctly, DEF is about $10 a gallon if you buy it in the small containers. Um, uh, what we did for a while is we would buy the 55-gallon drum, which I think ran about $275 or so. And that would last quite a long time. So DEF is not to be confused with diesel additive that keeps your fuel from gelling. Now, one thing I will say about DEF is it is about 60% water. So putting that, mixing DEF with any kind of fuel would be detrimental to any engine, whether it be diesel, gas, or jet. That water would just, uh, that would just not be good for any engine. Um, but like I said, it's not to be confused with diesel additive that is used in the wintertime to keep your fuel from gelling. Now, most um, fuel that you buy in the winter, diesel fuel, is not pre-treated, and there's a couple reasons for that. Number one, the, the below-ground tanks are temperature-stable enough that it doesn't have to be treated to keep it from gelling in the winter. And number two, selling diesel additive in the winter is a good sales thing that truck stops and other places do to build their sales in the winter. Those drivers come in, they fill their trucks up with fuel. It's really cold. They don't want their fuel to gel, which in turn will kill their engines. Um, you put in this additive that we'll be happy to sell you, your, fu your fuel won't gel. So it's a nice little add on sale for pretty much everybody that buys diesel fuel. But DEF is not an additive. So again, I have no idea why it would be mixed in with jet fuel. Uh, it sounds like somebody just made a, a really bad mistake. So that's it. 
Def is uh, is uh, completely separate, not to be added, and hopefully that's clarified things a little bit on what Def is, and hopefully uh, it'll help keep you guys a little above 50%. Thanks again for all you do, and hopefully I will see some of you soon. Thanks. Well, thanks, Tom. That Def helped the situation. Rimshot. Uh, yeah. 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 I'm going a bit deaf after listening to that. Well, you should turn no, down the volume. Lovely. It was lovely, Tom. No, yeah, it was great brilliant. because I. Uh, I'm glad you explained yeah, that. I don't know anything about that particular subject. So. Next time I see an American truck uh, belching black smoke, I'll say, hey, where's your deaf? <laughs> And okay. you'll get a blank stare in re- return. Just <laughs> <laughs> He's used to that. <laughs> Are we maybe confusing Prist with Def? I don't think so. Prist is the uh, Prist is the additive that's added to Jet A to prevent it from freezing. Yeah, and but that's he's talking aviation. He's saying the reason why there may have been Def around that area was because of diesel engines and what the purpose of it is. Uh, gotcha. I, I don't think gotcha. it was a yeah, I don't think it was a confusion between Prist and Def. But I don't know. Okay. That's my take from it. All right. Well, Tom Seagraves, always good to hear from Tom. And uh, thanks for clarifying that a little bit for us. Um, Let's see. Item 11. We're going to skip around a little bit. We're getting close to the end of the show. We may end up uh, stopping short or shy of three hours today because it's kind of getting late. And we've had a lot of technical snafus during this recording. And uh, Ray, well, first of all, let me set this up. Um, I have a new uh, big screen TV that I put behind me when I'm recording in my home studio. And I found a whole bunch of uh, photographs to display behind me while uh, doing the show. And one of the things that I had there was um, kind of a front to back view of an airplane uh, nacelle, engine nacelle. And I thought it looked pretty cool. It's all shiny, chromey, uh, interesting shiny. looking. Yeah, shiny, chromey. And uh, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> Ray, uh, Ray, my neighbor <laughs> to the north um, in Alpharetta, sent us this feedback, and he says, "I believe that the pic behind you was this airplane, which is a Dornier thirty-one or Dornier." Uh, however you want to pronounce it. That uh, was a hell of a pick, wasn't it? I mean, how? what kind of an avgate knows that? I know. I mean, and he, I was, Ray. when we were doing the show, he, he recognized it. He said, I think that's a I know, brilliant. <laughs> that's amazing. I was very impressed. And uh, he included a picture that he has taken uh, of the airplane on a um, static display. And uh, he says that um, it didn't make it, as far as he knows, it didn't make it into production. While all the cool, jazzy stuff like vertical takeoff and landing VTOL worked, the overall efficiency of the aircraft was somewhat hamstrung by the cool, jazzy stuff like VTOL, VTOL. The engine pods were a big drag, and the project was canceled. Uh, this doomed Acme's planned Alpharetta uh, to Atlanta, Roswell to Atlanta operations, as well as other more profitable plans for New York and San Francisco. I think there's a tongue firmly planted in his cheek. Uh, cancellations of projects like this are a big problem caused by allowing bean counters to control. Let the techs loose and we'd have a bunch of fun airplanes flying around. <laughs> uh, it's a very science fiction looking yeah, it looks, airplane, it though. It looks futuristic, even still. Yeah, it does. 
Like something you'd see in like a space like, movie. From the 80s. Yeah. It almost looks like an underwater vehicle. Yeah. Yeah, good point. I love the uh, the the engines look like the fuselage of a, a Harrier, really, with those two uh, um, turnable vector thrust nozzles. Mm -hmm. But I don't know what the bloody great pods on the wingtips are. Fuel, fuel tanks. I'm well. I'm kind of wondering why so. they don't look like. I mean, they look like they've got ducts on the I outside. I think they do. Though. There's ducted fans in those things too. I think. I'm trying yeah. to zoom I mean, in I'm to going, see if I can what tell. What the hell are oh, those no, things? That, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's great. interesting, isn't it? Though water cooling for the uh, vertical takeoff, and I don't know. I think they're a jacuzzi, okay. personally, or an ice cooler, uh, like a um, like an ice chest for beer. Yeah, yeah, could for be, beer, could be, yeah, could, yeah, like yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Keeping your beer cold. Oh, we need one of those Oshkosh. <laughs> we do. We need a whole darn Dornier thirty-one. <laughs> isn't that yeah. the RV With that you're in? It's just that. Well, it's going to be very you're similar. Drive it up. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, thanks, Ray, for uh, for giving us this photo. We'll put this in the show notes so y'all can look at this thing. It's pretty um, pretty amazing. Okay, so what did we decide we were going to do next? Then I'm confused. Sixteen. Okay, thank you. <laughs> we had a discussion going on in the behind the scenes of which ones to do. Hello, APG crew. This is Craig in Montana. Happy to report that my wife and I will be at Oshkosh for the final weekend of AirVenture. I just signed up for the Runway 5K, and I'm hoping Dr. Steph will be running too, and that the party will still be going for the last weekend. I have a few questions about radio communications that have been bouncing around in my head for uh, a few months. Uh, first, what is the status or designation of 131.2? On my scanner, I hear mainly the regionals like Horizon and SkyWest coming into Missoula using that frequency occasionally to request fuel and sometimes ice and drinks for their turnaround. It seems like it's an airport ops frequency because I once listened to a de-icing lesson between personnel at Missoula on that channel. Also, what about 131.8? It seems that's a medical emergency frequency. Because I once heard a one-sided conversation from a flight deck for a patient with a medical problem. So, have any of you used these frequencies lately? And for Captain Nick, does UK and Europe use those frequencies or equivalents? Thanks all, and look forward to seeing you at Oshblast. So yes, Craig, to answer your question, I will be running the 5K. Oh, that's easy. Yeah, well, she'll be running to get I, away from you. I was starting at the beginning. I will be doing 16-ounce 16, 16 curls, Craig. <laughs> I will be cheering Steph as she crosses the finish line, holding out a beer for her to quaff. Oh, yes. And and she's going to be representing APG, and she's going to be in first place. Yeah, so we'll all bet. be there cheering her. First place, there might be some fast people there. We'll see. Oh, no. No. I, I don't no. Want, no. no, no, no. No, I'm going to beat you, Steph. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run. All right. <laughs> in reverse, <laughs> say, I'll take that uphill, through snow. I think two feet of snow. Be faster than me. He sounds fast. Yeah. Well, hmm. I know I will. He doesn't be. talk fast. So. Yeah. No, he's from Montana. Oh, okay. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> okay. Sorry, Craig. I, apparently, I, <laughs> apparently, Steph has a, a something against people from Montana. No, no, I didn't. I didn't mean it that way at all. Just, I know. You know just kidding. I did. There's no rush. <laughs> so, Steph. Yes. Partially disappointed because you answered the 5K, which was an obvious answer. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Um, so, I redeem can myself? You, 
yeah. Can you say anything about any of these other questions he has? Uh, so those are just um, frequencies. Uh, <laughs> that okay, are not, good. I, I don't know I that can. they're... I can. I can. They are frequencies. I can. I can. Okay. Go ahead, Nick. <laughs> I did the good APG bloke bit and uh, said 131.8 used to be uh, the Edoware common frequency uh, across the Atlantic and in many other parts of the world. Um, but it has been superseded by 123.45. Uh, so, um, yeah, 1318 might have been used in the old days and it might have been used by some old hands. But much more likely, um, it was used because it is in the allocated frequencies for ARINC. Um, ARINC. Oh, God, what does it stand yeah, for? What does that stand uh, for? <laughs> yeah. We just uh, know it as ARINC. <laughs> uh, Air Radio Incorporated or something. It's oh. it's a commercially provided system uh, of communications to aid airliners uh, when they're talking, particularly at long range. So they put out uh, repeaters and uh, um, long range receivers and transmitters so that uh, we can communicate easily with our companies. And they work in the frequency bands uh, 128, a small 825, up to 132, which includes the frequency, you one of the frequencies you mentioned, of uh, 131.2. So uh, because it's a long-range uh, transmitter um, relay frequency, you definitely get, well, almost certainly only get one end of the frequency, uh, one end of the, the conversation, I'm sorry, because you'll either hear the aircraft or the ground agency, but probably not both. Um, now, uh, the other bit was... 1318, I think I've covered that. 1318 is probably also in the ARINC range now. Yes, it is. 136.5 uh, to, well, 1318 is actually in the first frequency range I mentioned. So, mm. uh, yeah, that, that's what I'm going to say. It's it's aircraft using ARINC to communicate back to the headquarters to discuss a medical problem on the aircraft. And, um, you know, that, you just happen to be picking up half the conversation. So, d Aeronautical Radio Incorporated. That's what oh, well, that Established in 1929 as a major provider of transport communications. That's what Aeronautical Radio or Air Inc. is. It's like I was saying, they're frequencies. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very good. Used for uh, communication. So, so, he asked, uh, have we used these frequencies lately or ever? Well, I'm sure you guys do occasionally, and I've done on occasionally. Does UK and Europe use these frequencies? Well, I think Arink is a uh, US-based company, so we would have some alternative in um, the in Europe. But quite honestly, nowadays, uh, ACARs and satellite phones tend to be the preference rather than using these frequencies, particularly if you're discussing something sensitive like a medical problem or an emergency. Uh, we don't want to uh, you know, get the news all hyped up, uh, how about, that sort of thing. How about this? ACARS well, is an airing service. Falls under well, it is, but that's, that's, that's a completely different animal. Right. But what I can say is that we have uh, a map of the world, of course, but you know, what Jeff and I primarily use is a air anchor, actually Atlanta radio, 
uh, map of the U.S. and there are certain frequencies in certain parts of the country which there are, uh, you know, that we can use to communicate back and forth with the company regarding such things as medical emergencies or any questions that we have to dispatch. Um, so we can be patched through on different frequencies. So I, I don't have the map in front of me, but one of these frequencies very well may be one of the uh, frequencies that we use based on the regional uh, directory. Yeah. Could be. Steph, when it comes to ACARS, we don't really choose um, how it goes out of the aircraft. It will either go on VHF, HF, or satellite, mm -hmm. or certainly my aircraft. And if it goes out on VHF in the States, it will probably go out on an ARINC frequency because I suspect that ACARS, uh, our ACARS system, uses that as a data link. So, the way, uh, so frequency. Uh, truly, I'm not familiar with all of this, but the way I'm reading about ARINC is that it's actually a company basically or a provider of all of these services and these frequencies yeah. um so acars is actually one of those provided services under this yeah company it's a bit like uh i don't know one of your telephone providers right. a yeah but i don't i don't i do not believe that acars is a voice obviously not a voice but it's a more of a data Correct. i'm not i'm not saying it like, is a, like I'm something not saying it's like a voice, you, you, but you hear just, on a fax machine or something similar. under the umbrella of this provider Right. Yeah. Yeah, sure is. I think some of the ARIC frequencies are allocated to data. Mm -hmm. um, I was thinking, is 312 a common Unicom frequency or not? No, no it's okay. not. Not for you. Gotcha. But that's what I was thinking not when I first read it. It sounds like, you know. Mm -hmm. well, 122.8, 123.0. Those are common it, Unicoms. It's a freak, uh, what is Unicom is a frequency that is used for contacting fixed space operations and stuff to uh, when you're approaching an airport. Uh, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Also, also for traffic pattern work. So, if you're in a traffic pattern, it, those frequencies are, are common frequencies that you'd use to be able to communicate your position within the traffic pattern at a non-controlled oh, area. A lot of times, they are the same so frequency. Yeah. yeah, a lot of times they are the same frequency, but sometimes they're not. Uh, and you'd actually have to reference either your uh, sectional chart or your AFD to have the uh, proper frequencies uh, for the airport. But common ones are 121.8, Those are all common, but 131 is, is not a very common no. number that we'd ever see on a GA mm -hmm. type of platform. Out of interest, Craig, there is actually a big resource there of people who listen to uh, air traffic frequencies, air to air frequencies, all those frequencies that we use, and they publish frequencies for those who like to use radio scanners to monitor air traffic because they're fascinated by uh, you know aviation. And if you get online, you can quite easily find a whole list of these frequencies and what their uses um, are, what they're allocated to, what airfields use them, etc. So um, get online and you'll get a lot more information than us. <laughs> yeah. Accurate information. <laughs> oh, yeah. They're well above the 50% Way above. <laughs> All right. Well, interesting. Okay. Well, thanks, Craig, for sending in that feedback and stimulating that discussion. And uh, I'm very stimulated. I well, we, we didn't want to say anything, but okay. <laughs> I, I think some liquid has to do something with that. So. Okay. Well, with that, I think now it's time for us to wrap up the show. We still have some great feedback uh, in the folder, which will be moved to the next show. Uh, some uh, regarding air stairs from Gail. 
And, oh, uh, really? Yeah. More air stairs. More air stairs. And uh, oh, so wow. questions I mean, some about... Jen, Jen will be so pleased. Yeah, I think she will. <laughs> yeah. um, some migraine headache questions from uh, Dave, who's a new listener, and Swansea Mark. Yeah. Has oh, a, I've got some of those. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. stay tuned, because next time... <laughs> I'll answer be... your question about it then. <laughs> okay. And with that, uh, if you want to learn more about the show, and I'm not sure why you would want to, but <laughs> if uh, you're just one of those uh, institutionalized folks out there listening, uh, head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com if, if your nurse lets you do that. Uh, AirlinePilotGuy.com is a place where you can find out about the crew and the, and the community and buy merchandise, and uh, there's a library there. Uh, Tiffany, our librarian, manages that very well. And, uh, you know, so many other things. Oh, Plain Tales has its own page as well. So check it out, AirlinePilotGuy.com. We are also we have a couple of apps, both for the iOS and Android platforms. Information about that can be found on the website as well. And we're on the Meads. We are. You can head over to Twitter.com, and we are at APG Crew. We also all have our own individual Twitter handles, and those are pinned to the top of the page. Um, lots of good chatter going on there, people cluing, cluing others into interesting things happening uh, in the aviation community. We're also on Facebook.com slash Airline Pilot Guy. Uh, lots more interaction going on there. Um, slightly different platform, obviously, and uh, different ways to share and exchange information. And if you want to delve even deeper into that, might I recommend Slack? I think you should. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com that's s-l-a-c-k sierra lima alpha charlie kilo at airlinepilotguy.com or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at hillel and i'll send you an invitation that's hillel spelled h-i-1-1-e-1 hotel india one one echo one and see you in slack thanks hillel and thank you to our producer Liz a big round of applause again for all the work that she does behind the scenes and it was great seeing you great seeing you last night Liz and uh, enjoyed that dinner and conversation and until next time wishing all of you clear skies unlimited visibility and tailwinds talons Douglas cheers y'all bye everybody see everybody next time Good day.